Guess what, ghouls and goblins? The Spook Boys have officially joined Patreon. That's right, baby. The show as you know it will remain the same, ad-free, but our patrons will have exclusive access to bonus content. Interviews, franchise deep dives, even horror television. Wait, did you say television? You heard right, Sally. Becoming a patron means you're not only helping us keep the show running, but that it also remains available on all platforms, and again, ad-free. For more details, head on over to patreon.com, where you can become an official member of the Spoop Troop today. Darren, are you ready to wait? What's happening? There was a dick, and in that dick, there were some balls, and on those balls, we stored some piss, which watered that old tree. What are you doing dancing around singing that weird song? Oh, it's the time of the month where we have to get rid of all the fleas that the dogs have, so I'm, I'm By- dancing the fleas away. And you put up a dog effigy made out of twigs, and you are you have a lighter up to it, like you're trying to light it on fire? What? Yeah, we burn this shit once a month, and that keeps the fleas away. It's fine. Dude, I just use Frontline once a month. What's Frontline? <laughs> What's, What's frontline? up, everybody? <laughs> yeah, that's the catch line for this, this episode. What's Frontline? Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, your movie monster boy, Aaron. And my cowardly co-host, Derek, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies like Derek and horror junkies like me. So, for this wonderful May Day extravaganza, we are going to be discussing The Wicker Man from 1973. Yay! And yeah, we will bring up the, the Nicolas Cage remake, too, just in case any of you are wondering. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> by the way, not talking about the remake, obviously. No, not talking about the remake, although it is great for its own reasons, but not necessarily because it's a good <laughs> TM movie. <laughs> yeah. Granted, we are recording this way in advance. By the time this episode comes out, it might be like a month and a half, two months later. And we mentioned that a couple times on the last several episodes. I think it's kind of safe to say here, Aaron, and maybe even at the time of this episode, they may have already arrived. I'm expecting my second child. Um, that's why we're banking episodes. They are due in mid-May. I'll probably take a good month or two off. So that's part of the reason why we're banking episodes. So yeah, if we're talking like about stuff that isn't necessarily like, especially recommendations that that's current, if I'm bringing up, which I guarantee you in the next episode or two, I'll probably be bringing up the Resident Evil 4 remake. Because at the time of this recording, it's about to come out literally a day from now. But when you hear this, it'll have been out for probably like a month and a half, two months. But I figured I'd drop that little nugget in now, given that this episode is for May Day when my second child is unscheduled to arrive. So yeah, that is what's going on here. And we decided to start a Patreon right when all of this is happening. Yeah, exactly. So guess what? All of my <laughs> recommendations are going to be basically all old shit. And we're going to talk about anything <laughs> new like Cough Cough Scream or Evil Dead Rise, so we're going to talk about all that shit on the Patreon, so uh, deal with it. 
speaking of, let's go ahead and jump into our recommendations. Uh, Derek, what have you got? Yeah, so uh, I got two recommendations this this episode, and one of them is one that you actually brought up a while ago. I won't spend much time on that one because it was brought up on a past episode. And then the second recommendation will be one that I think we'll both talk about a bit. First recommendation is a comic series, a mini series. It is, again, one you brought up. You actually sent it to me as a gift. Funny enough, I had already bought it months before you sent it to me as a gift. So I actually have two copies of it now. Oh, oops. It is the (laughs) autumnal, which I feel like is also pretty relevant to the episode we're doing today, given the idea of worshiping nature and doing fucked up shit in order to appease some outside force that you think is going to protect the community. Of course, the autumnal is much more supernatural, I would say, than Wicker Man is, but they are both on the same wavelength of folk horror. The autumnal is written by Daniel Kraus. Kraus has done a lot of stuff, actually. He is an author. Probably his most famous works are that he worked with Del Toro on Troll Hunter, and he has also worked with George Romero. I didn't realize that, and I don't remember if you brought that up, Aaron, but he basically went on to complete the unfinished novel by Romero called The Living Dead, uh, which was then released in August 2020. Uh, when did Romero pass? He passed before. He passed before that. It was a couple of years ago. Yeah, like he yeah. passed in 2017, and then Krauss went on to finish a novel three years later. So he's written TV, he's written novels, he's written standalone novels, he's written comics, et cetera, et cetera. So he's a very accomplished writer. I know I've read stuff by him before, at least in comics. Can't really recall anything off the top of my head, but it was pretty refreshing to read the autumnal. This story is pretty fantastic. For those of you who don't remember when Aaron brought it up as a recommendation, it follows this kind of punk rock woman named Kat, and she is a single mother of her daughter, and her daughter is also a little bit of a troublemaker, and they decide to leave their old life behind, and she inherits her mom's old house in Comfort Notch, New Hampshire, which is a place that she can barely remember as her hometown, which is already a red flag. Yeah. It's like a small town, idyllic, white picket fences, like it seems too good to be true. It's home of the prettiest autumn in America. But even in the first issue, like when she gets to Comfort Notch, her and her daughter are feeling unwanted. They feel like outsiders. There's weird ways that the people treat even the leaves on the ground, literally. And some people are being cryptic. No one's really being forward with her about why they're acting the way they are. And it basically follows her. She kind of can't help herself with how like forceful she is as a character she like has to look into it and because with her rebellious streak she kind of tries to go against the grain and also for the benefit of trying to protect her daughter she starts looking into the town history and sure enough weird shit starts happening people start dying off in odd ways the way people die off is really fucking creepy because like they usually are stuffed with leaves and they look like straw men scarecrows their corpses just full of the autumn leaves and everything what i really appreciated about this And we talked about this briefly on our Angel Heart episode when you brought up Knock at the Cabin. And I don't want to spoil anything, but it does have that gut punch ending that also has a weird cathartic spin to it. And also, like, it goes there. (laughs) I was not expecting it to do that. I thought I had an idea of how it was going to end, and it completely flips that on its head, all within, like, the last issue. It's amazing. The ending is horrific, tragic. And also a little bit like the witch of fuck yeah, 
by the end of it, but not necessarily in a... Not in an empowering way. In, yeah, not in an empowering way. The Witch was a little more empowering, I would say, whereas this is a, a, a bit more like revenge. Yeah. <laughs> like, I really appreciated that. If this ever gets adapted, I would hope whoever adapts it, and that was a problem we were discussing with Shyamalan and Knock at the Cabin, Like, I hope if this ever did get adapted, they keep the ending yeah. the way it is. Well, it's interesting because that's going to come up in our discussion about the movie we're covering in this episode, too. That Guess what? A lot of people like those downer endings, and a lot of movie producers think people won't and uh they're not always right so yeah 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 <laughs> so forewarning this does have kind of a downer ending but it also like the ending is it's bombastic in a way only horror can do it and that's all i'll leave it at because i don't want to spoil what happens as far as the horror throughout the series it's great like it's very much like small town with dark secret kind of a mystery that she's trying to solve yeah it kind of hits all your buttons yeah people who associate with her are just trying to help they wind up dying off and again it, it's really cool i really dig the lore around this town and the lore of the supernatural element it feels like it is borrowing from a lot of folk horror tropes but it's also it's an original thing again this is the autumnal by daniel kraus go to your local comic shop to support your local comic shop if they don't have it see if they can order it for you if they can't order it for you Go on Vault Comics because it was put out by Vault. But yeah, $20, I would say, is a steal for it because I think the miniseries was eight issues anyway. So it's a great miniseries. It's a great horror miniseries. Daniel Krause is a great writer. I want to read more of his stuff, especially in comics. I hope he continues to write comics, uh, especially horror comics. So yeah, Aaron, thank you for turning me on to this one. You're welcome. Really enjoyed it. Second thing, and this is the bigger one that uh, I think we'll both talk about because it's a movie. I decided on a whim, and I literally watched it yesterday, like before we record this episode, I watched the 1975 classic Italian giallo film by Argento, Deep Red. Yeah. You have killed And you will kill again. You're getting closer and closer to the most unnatural kind of death. Beyond shock. What was that? Beyond horror into total terror. Murder runs wild. Blood runs cold. Deep red. The conjecture is that an act of bloodshed was once committed in that house. Everywhere you look, everywhere you turn, death is running with you. So I still am processing it because I just watched it yesterday. 
And the more I think about it, the more I'm liking it. Part of this is not the movie's fault because my initial reaction was I was a little underwhelmed. But part of the reason why is because this movie is for free on like Pluto and Vudu. I think I watched it on Pluto TV okay. for free. It was called the English Uncensored version. The runtime was over two hours. So I was thinking it was it was the original cut. But in actuality, like there were a lot of ad breaks on the Pluto TV version. And they actually counted the ad breaks as part of the runtime. Oh, that's fucking lame. Yeah, so I winded up watching like the hour and 45 minute American cut that was dubbed and everything in English. And I think why parts of this movie didn't click for me, it wasn't because of the movie itself. I think it was just the way I watched it. Sure. Unlike Tubi, I think Tubi is the best out of the free streaming services because Tubi usually shows you all the ads at the beginning and then plays a movie uninterrupted or maybe interrupts the movie like once or twice. Fucking Pluto TV interrupts you like every 20 minutes with ads and the ads are like two minutes long. Oh, that sucks. It's like watching TV. Yeah. So it winded up taking two hours to get through this hour, 45 minute cut. There were parts where like, again, I think it was just because it was interrupted with by ads and everything where movie was losing me. I was kind of zoning out. The movie actually, I thought for some reason I went in thinking this was like a more contained movie. Like it was maybe in like one or two places, but no. the movie kind of travels around. It is the definition of giallo and i didn't want to really give you any context to the movie but it is exactly the bridge movie for argento between his earlier movies like in the animal trilogy that are explicitly giallo mysteries to his supernatural stuff like suspiria and inferno and the three mothers stuff like this is kind of that right in between bridge where those two things are colliding and you're not sure like what to expect or where it's going to be going. And it's funny you say that because it's not supernatural, but it felt ethereal in certain places. It was still very much a story you could follow from start to finish, where I feel like his later stuff is a little more ethereal, dreamlike. But there were elements of that in this. Yeah, but there's a fucking psychic, and there is psychic activity. Yeah, there is a psychic. <laughs> you're right. I forgot. The first victim is a psychic. It's not like they're faking any of this. There is clearly psychic phenomena occurring yeah so there is definitely some of that but what i will say because i don't want to get eviscerated the more i thought about it i think i like it a lot i absolutely want us to cover it because i absolutely want to rewatch oh, this movie yeah. and yeah, yeah. and rewatch it without ads and i want to watch the italian cut next the one that is two hours because there were other elements and maybe like maybe this is also because like i know you and james have told me that sometimes this is part of italian horror but i feel like the italian cut has some of those scenes that make it make a little more sense in that the woman reporter who I thought should have been more in the movie, maybe she's in more in the Italian cut, whereas in the American, she kind of disappears from the movie for like 45 minutes. Sure. Even though like they kind of were setting her up in that one scene between him and her that like she was definitely into him and he was kind of starting to fall for her. But then like that whole subplot is kind of just dropped altogether whereas i was reading that they have more scenes together i think in the italian cut and there's more of like a romance budding there i really dug the story and where the movie really like kind of blew my mind open and it brought me back on board was the reveal and i'm trying to say this so i don't spoil anything it's fucking insane and it's also definitely a little bit sketchy (laughs) yeah well not not just that but when you go back and think about a past scene sure. in the movie, when they show you like what actually happened, that's when it blew my mind away. And after I finished the movie, I even went back to the like when the scene actually happened, and it's there. Mm-hmm. 
and I'll leave it at that because I don't want to spoil anything else. That was where I was like, okay, okay, movie, I'm on board. It's interesting how it does completely lay all the cards out on the table, but the movie then immediately kind of leads you in one direction, and you're that's the avenue you're going down, yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's maybe busting the surprise a little bit, but with it being a mystery like this, I mean, you're going in expecting that the first few clear-cut answers are not going to be the ultimate reveal yeah. or solution anyway. So I guess I'm not really spoiling yeah. anything. Everything about the missing painting was like where, by the end, the movie blew my mind wide open. Because like the whole time he's bringing up that missing painting, it, that's another one of those subplots you think is just like going to be dropped. And it kind of is. And then when it comes back, it's like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely 100% think this is a capital H horror film because not only is it a Giallo-like murder mystery, this is yet again one of those post-psycho but pre-Halloween slashers. I would very much argue this is a slasher movie as much as it is a Giallo. Some of the kills are pretty uh, creepy, and one of them is very mean-spirited involving a sink. (laughs) That one was the most brutal. Holy fuck. Everything involving the dolls was creepy. All the hanging dolls and then that... Like one mechanical doll. Yeah. Again, more and more and more time goes on. You realize, oh yeah, James Wan, Lee Wanell basically ripped everything from Saw from like a dozen other movies. Yeah. And again, listeners, this is a movie we are a thousand percent going to cover and make a full episode out of. And I absolutely want to rewatch this movie and give it the watch it deserves uninterrupted and everything. We will obviously discuss this more on the actual episode when we cover it. But as a disclaimer now, while we're recommending it, just know that there is a scene of actual animal cruelty that occurs in the actual, like, full-blown Italian uncut version. So if you watch that version... I think they show it in the American version, too. Okay, I can't remember, like, what scenes are in which version, because I've watched both. Was it the lizard? Yeah. Yeah, that's in the American version. I I can't remember, like, which cut that was in, necessarily, but... Just as a disclaimer, like, that is something that's in this movie. Keep in mind that the rest of the world doesn't necessarily have the same standards for, like, animal safety that uh yeah. we expect, right? So that's certainly something to keep in mind as you're going into the movie. Granted, I will say, I don't know if the Italian cut actually shows it happening, but the U.S. cut at least shows the aftermath, and it looked real. So, yeah, that's the scene that I think you're talking about. Also, Goblin does a soundtrack, and it's fucking great. Uh, it's fucking awesome, man. I love it. It's like way more jazz proggy than it is psychedelic, like some of their later stuff with Argento. But it's just groovy as fuck, man. I love it. Another reason why I want to watch the Italian cut is I want to see how it was used in that versus the American. Because it it felt like the music cues were kind of odd in the uh, American cut. And the soundtrack wasn't as pronounced as I was hoping it to be. Or I was reading, and I think you told me that the score is a little bit different in the Italian version as well. If I remember correctly, it is. Again, I've watched both since getting the Arrow set. And 
I have maybe watched one cut or the other since just on Shudder or wherever just to have on the background. So the problem is both versions kind of blend together in my head. So when we do officially cover that, I will have to absolutely watch both versions back to back again. Yeah. Speaking of kills in this movie, and we'll get into greater detail about it when we actually cover this movie, but like there's one kill that I, I'll admit I started laughing because it was just, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and like you think it's done, and then one final thing happens to like desecrate the corpse completely and it was almost looney tunes-esque <laughs> and then the final kill of the movie is pretty fucking brutal too and i'll just leave it at that but yeah i think this is a absolutely movie like anyone interested in filmmaking in general should watch obviously it is a masterpiece i again i think my watch was more corrupted with just the way i was watching it and i kind of went in thinking it was the italian version but then it turned out to be the u.s version and then i was interrupted by commercials like a whole bunch. So I th- again, I think my viewing was spoiled, but the more I've sat with the movie, the more I like it, and I cannot wait for us to cover it so I can rewatch it and rewatch the and, as the Italian version. Aaron, I remember talking to you and asking you, and you said actually both versions are appropriate. So I would say, listeners, if you're going to watch it, as far as the big picture goes, you're not missing anything by watching one cut over the other. If you're kind of more in a hurry and you don't necessarily want to try and pay attention to to uh, subtitles, the U.S. cut is shorter. And it's all dubbed in English. And the dubbing is not horrible, surprisingly. There are some parts where it's like, okay, but for the most part, the dubbing's not bad. But if you have the time to spare and you don't mind subtitles, the Italian version is also there too. But yeah, so do you have any final thoughts on Deep Red? No, none that I would want to share now. Again, we will for sure cover this in the future. So I would way rather save my like thought thoughts until then. Yeah, and I didn't even bring up the use of red with it being called deep red. Like, there's plenty of moments where red is used symbolically in the set dressing and everything else. So, um, and we'll we'll touch on all that when we actually cover the episode. And I am fascinated to watch more Argento, especially like from Deep Red to Suspiria. So, yeah, those are my recommendations. Cool. Well, I've got two as well. First one that I would bring up it is. Available on Shudder, or at least it was. Um, it may not be by the time this comes out, but the movie is Malefique from 2002. Oh, J'ai senti un truc. C'est le journal d'un tout là. Je suis sur le point de comprendre. L'envers s'est évadé de cette cellule. On peut sortir. Comme lui. Nous approchons. Le livre nous guide. It is a French thriller directed by Eric Vallette. He directed the U.S. remake of One Missed Call, and that was kind of the only other notable thing I recognized of his. This is about 
four prisoners who discover this diary hidden in the wall of their cell that is a black magic handbook that belongs to like this legendary prisoner who may or may not have escaped dot 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 and the key <laughs> to like escaping this prison may or may not be in this book that they now have in their possession dot 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 very interesting premise it's one of those movies like cube where I think for the most part, I give it all the props for its creativity and premise. The fact that it literally all takes place in this fucking jail cell. Oh shit, really? So it is a very contained movie. Yes. And granted, this is a jail cell in a French prison. So like they actually have full size bunk beds and a little kitchenette and it's like an apartment essentially, you know, they have like a table that they all sit around to eat and play card games and that kind of shit. So, like, it works as a set for a movie where you can move the camera around a little bit more and have a little bit more freedom of movement. The cast is very tiny. It's essentially just these four leads. And they all have their own motivations and different backstories. One of the characters is this fucking serial killer. It's like this old guy who murdered a bunch of people like 30, 40 years ago. Another guy that just got in for white-collar bullshit financial crimes. And is like convinced that he's innocent and he's going to get out. So it's this interesting blend of characters that are all kind of bouncing off of each other. Then trying to parse what the fucking mysteries are in this book. And figure out how can they use that to get out. Very cool small premise. Again, it reminds me a lot of Cube. It is very rough around the edges still. (laughs) You know, it's a very low budget movie. The dialogue isn't always the most clever or inventive the performances are decent but they're not great you know the guy who is playing a developmentally disabled character you know there's like some whiffs of simple jack in there (laughs) if you know what i mean okay uh this is a little bit glib the character who is a cross-dresser is at times okay, cool, you're actually trying to, like, play this as part of this character's story, and then at other times it's kind of this just non-aspect. I don't know, like, there's things where, again, like, the movie is a little bit rough around the edges, but overall, it's pretty interesting. For a very small movie that I've never fucking heard of, that just kind of appeared on Shudder, pretty interesting. I would say, as much as I love Shudder, they've never had the best streaming quality. That just is what it is, and I think that's just part of their parent company, AMC, just not really investing that much in, like, having a top-tier streaming platform. Right. You know, I think the main reason everybody loves Shudder, one of the main reasons I love Shudder, is just the access to the stuff. Yeah. So, like, on one hand, glad that I saw this. On the other hand, it was DVD-quality streaming, very, very full of crushed colors and artifacting. Like, it looks rough. Well, and I I wondered, too, like... With this being a 2002, sounds like low budget French it's horror movie. It's probably like, not at all been it's cleaned up never or remastered. Been, yeah. yeah, like never been remastered. So, like, is that a symptom of the streaming service? Is that a symptom of the source? It's probably both. Yeah. And this is a movie that is dark visually. So it's kind of hard to see what's going on sometimes. You know? DVD quality. Yeah. But yeah. overall, pretty interesting. I would recommend checking it out, especially if you're into like, very small, isolated premise, 
small cast kind of stuff. It's a very cool concept, and I think it earns its runtime. You know, sometimes you watch stuff like that and you're like, this would make for a cool short film, not a feature. I think this kind of earns its feature length. But yeah, that's uh, Malefique from 2002. Other movie I want to mention. This was one that I picked up recently during one of the Vinegar Syndrome sales. Um, so I got it for cheap. Kind of glad I got it for cheap because it wasn't the best. Very interesting. And I think I enjoyed it overall. Just not necessarily like, oh God, you got to fucking buy this movie because there's not a whole lot of other ways that you're going to watch this, I don't think. I don't know that it's on streaming. I didn't really check. This is a Canadian movie from 1999. It is one of the many seven ripoffs that came out around this time. This is called Resurrection. Good evening. As it has been, our top story tonight continues to be the ongoing search for a serial killer. Guy comes in here, cuts another guy's head off, walks off with it, and nobody sees anything, no witnesses. The lab says it wasn't human. It says it was lamb's blood. A detective is about to test his faith. All the victims were 33 years old, the same age as Christ when he died. The guy's rebuilding the body of Christ. And his sanity. Resurrection. Christopher Lambert. Leland Borson. Question your sanity. Have mercy on your soul, because Judgment Day has arrived. From the director of Highlander and The Shadow comes a horrifying story about two cops who must find a madman before it's too late. Be afraid. For he has risen. Resurrection. Wait, did you say 1990 or 1999? 99. Okay, I thought you said 90. There's like seven different movies named Resurrection, which is confusing because maybe five episodes ago, I also recommended a movie that came out last (laughs) year called Resurrection. Yeah, because when you said it was a seven ripoff, I was like, well, seven didn't come out until like 97. So Yeah. Yeah, no, 99 makes more sense. And even just... I'm looking at the original film poster for Resurrection. Yeah, this looks like a seven ripoff. Yeah, completely. seven came out in 95. And in that five or six years after, there were just so many fucking ripoffs. Because this also has Grizzle Detective and his partner tracking a fucking serial killer who's committing all these murders and leaving all these cryptic religious kind of clues behind and there seems to be like this message from the killer that he's trying christopher lambert is i guess the canadian's answer to brad pitt in this movie and david cronenberg is in it so (laughs) yeah so this movie was directed by russell mulcahy the guy who made razorback which is a movie that i'm sure we'll cover at some point Absolutely, I want to watch Razorback. It is on my list of shit to watch with Heather for our Valentine's Day celebrations. Animal attacks, yeah. He directed the original (laughs) Highlander. That is the main thing that he is known for. He also did Highlander 2 The Quickening, which is a fucking batshit sequel. It is one of the best non-sequitur sequels I've ever seen. He also did The Shadow. 
He directed Resident Evil 3, the one where they like go to fucking Las Vegas. And weirdly enough, did not know this because my wife is a fan of this show, as is her younger sister. He directed the vast bulk of the episodes of MTV's Teen Wolf show, as well as the Teen he also Wolf put out movie, a movie that just came yeah, out recently. Yeah. So yeah, Russell yeah. Mulcahy, wild fucking director. And yeah, this movie stars Christopher Lambert, star of Greystoke, Highlander, Fortress. He's Lord Raiden in Mortal Kombat. He's also in fucking Southland Tales, Hail Caesar. He's had a fucking wild career. He is so fucking wildly like miscast in this movie, and I'll I'll get to why in a second. <laughs> I kind of love that. <laughs> yeah, his partner is Leland Orser, who is one of the biggest that guy actors out there. Ironically enough, he's in Seven. If you remember Seven, like the guy who used the fucking combat knife strap on, that's him, right? He is also in Alien Resurrection. He's in The Bone Collector. Like, he was in a lot of these kind of movies around this time. He's still working. He was in The Guest a couple of years ago. I just saw him in something else recently. Is he the Morgan Freeman? No, he's more of the Brad Pitt. He is more of the, like, young, hotshot, smartass partner. Like you mentioned, David Cronenberg is in this movie playing a fucking priest who has two scenes in the movie. Anyway... This movie is set in Chicago. It's 100% clear that they, like, shot necessary exterior shit. Like, there's some scenes with a car chase around the L train, which are kind of hilarious because, like, there's clearly crowds on all sides of the road that were like, oh, they're filming a movie. We're going to stand around and fucking, like, watch them film this movie. Stuff that they clearly shot in Chicago for exteriors, the rest of the movie is obviously shot in Toronto. Well, there was a third location they apparently shot at, Yeah, too. so that's what I'm getting to. So, where this movie is kind of hilarious to me, and you at least, Christopher Lambert, he is an actor who was born on Long Island, but his family immediately relocated to fucking Switzerland. And so he basically grew up in Switzerland, spent some of his formative teen and college years in France, hence his fucking weird accent that you can't quite place. Well, and he's in a bunch of French shit, too, right? Yeah, he was in stuff while he was in France, right? Yeah. But he has that wild accent that you can't quite place. And he's obviously been like a shit ton of Canadian stuff, too. So the whole deal, the way that they justify it, kind of like every fucking Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, they're always like, oh, yeah, that's Sergeant So-and-so. He's our Austrian exchange cop who's over here in America. Like <laughs> They always have those like weird yeah. explanations of why fucking Arnold has his accent. The way they kind of justify that in this movie is they're like, Detective What's-His-Nuts is from New Orleans. We don't know how you did things <laughs> down in New Orleans. We don't know how things were oh, down God. there. Oh, you fucking crazy Cajuns. That's how they do it? You love eating crawfish. Like, there's literally a scene where he goes to, like, lunch with Leland Orser, and they, like, go to a bar, and he just gets a bucket of crawfish in Chicago. At a Chicago bar? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. And, you know, Lula Norris was like, God, can't we just get a fucking hamburger for once? Implying that they literally go eat crawfish like nine times a week. <laughs> but yeah, the whole deal is he's from New Orleans. Now, other than fucking Tommy Wiseau, who claims to be from fucking Chalmette, and also has the, like, unplaceable fucking weird accent, 
Uh, nobody sounds like Christopher Lambert down in New Orleans. Just saying. Literally nobody sounds like <laughs> Christopher Lambert down there. So the production notes Chicago and Toronto, but also New Orleans is like where they it shot stuff. It says that some stuff was shot in New Orleans. I, yeah, so I was going to ask you what actually was. Honestly, <laughs> could not fucking tell you. There's a few scenes where they go to these kill sites that are in these abandoned warehouses where they've got dirty plastic sheets hanging from the ceiling and there's abandoned fucking industrial equipment and chains everywhere like i don't know maybe one of those locations is in new orleans but like none of the movie is set in new orleans it's not like they have a moment where he has to like go back to new orleans to dig up his past like there's no new orleans in the movie so I don't know. I saw that, too, and I was like, why the fuck do they credit New Orleans as a filming location? Because there were no specifics around where they shot. But yeah, that's the whole explanation is I am Detective Christopher Lambert and I am looking for this serial killer. Like nobody fucking sounds like his weird Peter Laurie ass. Yeah. Mon ami. <laughs> I mean, they did the same shit with Hard Target and Jean-Claude Van Damme. The difference is his Belgian accent is a little bit closer to a french cajun accent that you can like kind of fudge it especially if you like also have somebody like wolf brimley who's way overdoing a fucking born on me cajun accent it's all bad right but the thing is he spent time in france and knows french and acted in french stuff <sighs> i don't know how were they not able to pull off the cajun his accent's just so fucking weird I, th I think part of it is oh dog you're like family's fucking long island is shit and then, like, you were raised in Switzerland? In Switzerland, I yeah. Don't know. Yeah, so the, the wires got crossed. Yeah. Anyway, the whole deal is this killer is leaving bodies. The bodies are all missing a major body part. They, like, jump to this conclusion very quickly in the movie, by the way. So I'm not spoiling anything. This is in the first 15 minutes that he, like, suddenly cracks his fucking case on, oh, they're trying to rebuild the body of Christ. Excuse me? Yeah, it's just stuff like, he <laughs> murdered this guy named Peter, who worked for the IRS. Well, Peter the Apostle was a tax collector. Uh, he murdered this guy named Philip, who ran a fishing company. Philip was a fisherman. They each had five quarters in their pockets. Wait. That's 30 so pieces of silver. Like, it's just all this cryptic religious bullshit. But somehow, he has the insight to put all these clues together, right? So where Seven was like, each murder is following the seven, seven deadly, deadly sins, sin, yeah. their ripoff is we're going to kill someone, take one of their body parts, they all happen to be named after apostles or biblical figures, Yes, put the body parts together to make Christ. Uh, this sounds like a plot that I would have written when I was 14 after watching Seven. Yeah. Lambert wrote this with one of his writing partners who has written several other movies. So like, he wrote this. Listeners, you can't see, but he just spit I took a sip yeah. of water, and I almost had it come out my nose when he said that. I will give the movie this. The murder scenes are gory as fuck, and they feel real. That is kind of one of the insane things. That was the other thing I, I was seeing on, on the notes about this movie, is that it was going to be rated or originally rated as NC-17 with just how gory the murder scenes were. So many movies do not pull off dead bodies. They don't pull off blood well. There is a quality of blood. The viscous consistency of blood, how dark blood actually is, especially when it's pulled up. You know, blood is not bright red, except in little small quantities. Yeah. It's tacky. 
you know, it dries up, it gets crusty. There's all these little details that, ugh, it looks real. It looks and feels very real to, like, real crime scene photos and shit that you see. And it's very unsettling. You know, like, they walk in and see, like, oh, here's a body with, like, its head fucking missing. And it's like, whoa, that doesn't look like the usual fake bloody head stump shit that I'm used to seeing in horror movies, you know? That looks like a real dead body. (laughs) To its credit, there's some unsettling shit like that in this movie. Now, that said, there is some fucking hyperactive camera work that is laughably bad. There is some handheld camera work to give it that gritty, realistic kind of feel. But it is like you're having a seizure with how much the camera's fucking shaking for no reason while characters are just standing there talking to each other. There's all these whiplash rotations where a character like suddenly has a realization about something and the camera literally just like, watch, watch. There's all these moments <laughs> where like they discover a body and the characters are freaking out. And I mean, it's literally the like Tommy boy. Oh yeah. New guys over there in the corner, puking his guts up. Here comes a meat wagon. And the medic gets out and says, oh my God. New guys in the corner, puking his guts out. <laughs> <laughs> like it's literally that kind of shit when every time that they discover a new body the cops are just barfing in the corner but there's always like this weird distortion effect where like the detectives show up and they're also just like oh god oh no oh god oh no oh god no 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 shit no And the camera's just like, like just fucking it's nonsense. The camera work in this movie is ridiculous. I read the ending and the ending scene sounds mental, but it is so (laughs) okay. So like before we get there, this is one of the more ridiculous killer reveals that I've ever seen where the shoe drops and you actually discover who the real killer is. A, it's two-thirds of the way through the movie. This is a textbook example of where the movie immediately gets less interesting once the killer is revealed, and the rest of the movie is just kind of perfunctory, and you're just kind of like, okay, let's get to the end, right? The reveal at the end of Seven is so fucking shocking, but it's also so exciting because it comes out of left field so hard, and then all of a sudden there's like this extra wrinkle of, oh, huh. Where is this going? Interesting. Granted, the person who shows up at the end of Seven is a uh, problematic person. Yeah. (laughs) And so that's a little bit weird nowadays, unfortunately. But it's one of those things where, like, that reveal is done so well. And it's also done at the very end of the movie that it kind of gives you that last bit of propulsion that you need to push through to the end. This movie, again, it happens closer to halfway through the movie. I said two-thirds, but it really happens closer to halfway through. And the rest of the movie just feels like you took half the fucking air out of the balloon. It's really fucking wild how much this movie just falls apart once they know the identity of the killer, and they're just trying to catch him, right? All the buildup of all these different bodies and all these clues and all the mystery just kind of fucking stops once they like know who the killer is. Aaron, once again... I have to remind you, this is our recommendations. Well, again, <laughs> I would recommend this. No, I'm, I'm, I'm messing with you. I would recommend this just simply because of the pedigree. Yeah, it sounds absurd enough to watch. 
I would recommend this because it is entertainingly absurd. And it is a good example that makes you, again, appreciate stuff like Seven. Because you watch something like this and you're like, okay, this was fun, but this was not good. And I exactly see why this movie was not good. And it makes me appreciate all these other actually good movies that we have that do this whole idea better. But then you have that aspect of the gore, though, where it's like... That's legitimately unsettling, right? Yeah, yeah, even though there are tons of movies that are way better than this movie, but don't get the gore right. Yeah. Like, this one actually got it right and made it unsettling. And so, to your point, and this is where I'll wrap up, the ending of this movie is like the biggest wet fart. <laughs> It reads like a middling action movie, by the way, like the ending. Because it is. That's the thing. The ending of this movie, the climax, like the final huge moment, is such a laughably goofy and then just completely inert, weird moment. And then there is this epilogue that is the most, why are we doing this, revisiting this moment, this character the fuck and that's just like how the movie like cuts to credits like get the fuck out of here <laughs> anyway i would still recommend this i have to laugh that we we spend way more time talking about this movie than fucking deep red because we're gonna way. actually do a full episode on deep red we're never going to do a full episode on this movie well we might if we do a if we do a commentary <laughs> maybe yes true so anyway yeah that's resurrection from 1999 Vinegar Syndrome has it out on Blu-ray. I'm sure you can probably dig it up somewhere if you go look for it. Man, God bless these boutique Blu-ray distributors. They'll put out anything that's even remotely kind of cult classic. I mean, it really has gotten to that point. It's so rare now that one of these boutique labels will like put out a major title unless they by some miracle get the rights to it. For every instance of this where, like, Vinegar Syndrome has put out Resurrection from 1999 starring Christopher Lambert, they just did fucking Roadhouse. They just did, like, a big giant 4K of Roadhouse, and that's, like, a major but, pop culture movie. But that that's still a genre flick. It's genre. But, yeah, but that's still... But it's still, yeah. like, a big deal pop culture title, you know? That's a movie that plays on fucking TNT and TBS that yeah. our parents watch constantly. This movie is not. Yeah, that's like a popular, like easily digestible genre. Yeah. But like, I do like that the boutiques still stick with even the big releases still are genre flicks. Yeah. Like they should stay in that wheelhouse. Well, they generally do. Yeah. So, I mean, for every- like, I don't think they should be getting like big releases. I think they should stick to stuff like this. But it's just very entertaining that anything that even has a slight remotely possible cult following. They'll oh, put sure. Out on, sure. They're going right. for it. And it's getting to the point now where so much stuff has been put out by all these various boutiques that everybody is just looking for anything that's left. Anything in the nooks and crannies that they can pull, they're getting at this point. I remember when you and I were like, not even workshopping this podcast, but like just talking about horror movies. And this was like 2014, 2013, 2014, 2015. There were still like movies that, oh, they put out one printing and it was a DVD, not even Blu-ray. And it's, reselling on ebay for 150 dollars. i rarely see that now because the boutiques have made all this so much more accessible and things have been re-released so much it still happens but now it's these ultra limited editions that yeah. they only made in a few <laughs> quantities that are selling for a ton of money now yeah they're doing the 90s comics and what magic the gathering is currently doing pumping out these oh, totally. limited yeah. edition collectibles yeah 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 
as far as like actually accessing these movies now, it's way easier yeah. to get a hold of them as opposed to like even a decade ago. Yeah, totally. All right, cool. Well, let's transition from there into the movie that we're covering this week, which is, again, The Wicker Man. Perfect for this wonderful May time that we are going to be in in the future are now when this episode drops. Da, da, da. Perfect for you to go fuck in a field with your lover and all your friends. Yes. Derek and I are sitting here recording on this lovely spring question mark day. Just dicks hard, ready to eat some apples, ready to go. I'm holding an egg in my hand for some reason. (laughs) Directed by Robin Hardy, uh, it follows a stalwart, self-righteous Christian police detective who travels to a remote Scottish isle to investigate the disappearance of a young girl, only to discover that the villagers have returned to the old pagan ways, so... Here is a little glimpse of what we will be discussing. I am here to investigate the disappearance of a young girl. Where is Rowan Morrison? If Rowan Morrison existed, we would know. I suspect murder. Sergeant, I've already told... In the name of God, woman, what kind of mother are you? That can stand by and see your own child slaughtered? You are the fool, Mr. Harry. You are liars. You are despicable little liars. So, before we get started discussing this wonderful movie, what would your May Day costume be? So, I'm going to reveal something about myself. This is one of those childhood things that has stuck with me just into my adult life. I've always had this idea for a character, and originally I think it was like a superhero. I've dabbled in mostly in X-Men comics when I was growing up as a kid, and like X-Men the Animated Series and Spider-Man the Animated Series, those 90 series were like the big things for me. And I always thought about if I was a villain or a hero, like who would I be? And one of the more interesting B-list Spider-Man villains is this guy named the Jackal. Oh, not fucking Brick Frog? (laughs) Yeah, not Brick Frog. (laughs) But he's basically a knockoff Mr. Sinister, but he literally looks like a Jackal, like he spliced his DNA or some shit with animal genes, and now he looks like an evil (laughs) beast, but like more Jackal-like. But sometimes he would be representative of like the Egyptian Jackal mask. And like also as a kid, one of my favorite subjects in history was learning about ancient egypt and their deities and their their whole mythology like i was actually more interested in that than greek mythology and i've always been fascinated by the imagery of anubis and the jackal and the jackal mask the jackal itself being this creature throughout not even just egyptian culture but cultures in general of being a trickster sometimes even associated with death 
It's funny you mention that because I always had this idea of a character who wears a jackal mask yeah. and is called the jackal or something. So I think I would actually dress up like a jackal. I would like do a variation of the Egyptian jackal mask and that would be my costume. What about you? I would just be the aggravated octopus. God damn it. I give a serious <laughs> answer and then you go with that shit. I revealed a deep-seated childhood weird memory that's always stuck with me into a donut and that's Look, me. you could have just said you wanted to be the fucking salmon of knowledge. That's all I'm saying. The salmon of knowledge. So the salmon of knowledge costume was pretty fucking goofy, I will say. I loved that guy's costume. Yeah, they were all fucking movie. good. Like his, I, I love when in one scene he's like walking in the parade and like his salmon costume, which looks really uncomfortable, by the yeah. way. It's like sweet back and forth you know he could see shit in that thing oh yeah <laughs> oh here's a backup one for me have you seen that fucking gif of like i think it's the toronto raptors mascot when he runs out of the court and trips over his own self and like face plants he's like a yes. big blown up raptor <laughs> that would be my other the raptor <laughs> of wrath me just face planting with googly eyes yeah <laughs> so yeah this movie is pretty interesting it's a different kind of thing than what we have covered Oddly enough, we have literally done an actual horror musical on here, but uh, this movie's pretty close to being a musical as well. This is close to being a musical, yeah. I was, I had that same note written down. You know, a lot of people younger, I guess, are going to be more kind of aware of Ari Aster's Midsummer, which is just, it's current, so I mean, it's more in the public consciousness, right? And it's playing with a lot of the same types of things. I was going to ask you, like, would Midsommar, and I'm guessing no, but would Midsommar even exist without, like, The Wicker Man? There's a lot of fucking horror movies that have come since that would not be around. Well, obviously. Listeners, you got to understand, The Wicker Man, the original 1973 Wicker Man, granted, throughout history, there has been the idea of building sacrificial Wicker Men. But it was never popularized in culture until this movie. Well, during this time, especially in the UK, there was a huge folk revival that was going on. And granted, this was happening like in the US too, to a slightly different degree, but there was this big counterculture, hippie-ish, return to nature alternative religion exploration like there was this just entire movement that was going on flirting with pagan druid yeah in the 60s leading up to all this right yeah in the uk specifically there was this big push to like explore older folk legends and folk traditions you know we don't have that history here in america you know america fundamentally is a country that existed for tens of thousands of years prior that people lived on this land and had their own cultures and traditions and largely that all got wiped away when yeah white people from europe came to america if we had any it was stolen either from the native americans or uh, the african slaves we brought with us right you know and there was a lot of stuff that got brought from the old world to the new yeah cultures from all over the place you know like all over europe where immigrants were coming from in different waves different times right like obviously we had like a whole wave of british immigrants you know then we had a whole wave of German and Irish immigrants that came like it kind of happens in these waves right you know now we have a lot of immigration from all these other places America being that kind of melting pot there is no oh we can go back to like our ancient Gaelic 
druid traditions, right? And pull these things. Well, and to modern horror, like it just makes more sense because like looking at the folk horror movies that we've covered already that kind of flirt with the same ideas as this one, like the ritual or kill list, they're all European. I think Kill List is another British horror movie, right? Yeah. The ritual was British? I don't remember what the ritual was. The ritual's was. American, but set in Sweden. Sweden, yeah. yeah. And Midsummer is set in Sweden as well. Sweden, yeah. So they're, they're either always set in these Anglo-Saxon European countries, or they are like movies from there, even to this day. And it just makes more sense that way, because like, again, like you said, Aaron, America, we don't really have that unless you want to problematically like just steal shit from the people that were already here or came over which with has us. always happened yeah and i mean yeah during the 60s as well that whole generation much like every other generation that's come before was largely just kind of grabbing shit from wherever they found it etc like america was way more of a mishmash when it came to the 60s counterculture hippy dippy earth nature bullshit well, that, that was another aspect of this film that I really grabbed me was it felt hippie, but not American hippie. No, no, that, right? that, that's what I'm saying. This is following, trying to follow to various degrees of authenticity, which I'll talk about in a second. But this is trying to like actually go back to the ancient roots of this very specific area. But also throwing in like free love of like these younger adults that are also like part of this cult <laughs> yes and i mean there's also elements too of how some of this culture is let's say exploited and manipulated by the aristocracy for various reasons uh which i'll get into in a second but just in general during this time as far as like a context and a setting for this movie there was a huge folk revival thing happening in the uk and that's kind of what led to this movie coming about, was this was just what was in the zeitgeist around that time. And to that point, by the early 70s, Christopher Lee was looking for something different after being deep in like the hammer stable for well over a decade. I mean, that is what Christopher Lee was known for. I was going to ask you, like, how soon after his hammer run was this? Because... He does, especially like the ending pieces of dialogue he delivers, do feel like that hammer-like bombasticness yeah. to it. There's a, a little bit of it in there. He but... was still making hammer stuff during this time. Yeah. He just wanted to do something that was a little bit out of the norm of that mode. But frankly, he's a lot more subdued in this movie than the stuff I've seen from the hammer run, but he is honestly, arguably, way more terrifying. Oh, sure, yeah. Any of his hammer shit. Yeah, because, I mean, there's there's a level of reality to this performance. Yeah. He is just playing He's very believable. He's not playing fucking Dracula, Prince of Darkness. He is playing a Jim Jones on this fucking island, right? I mean, rest his soul, like, Christopher Lee, because one of the greatest actors ever. I mean, he's the fucking White Wizard. He's Count Dooku. He was this. He was fucking Dracula. My man had range. Oh, no, no, no. Christopher Lee was the mummy, he was Frankenstein's monster, he was Fu Manchu, he was the man with the golden gun, fucking Scaramanga. That's right, he was, I forgot about that. He's Count Adakar Graf Caesarin in the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, he's Dr. Catheter in Gremlins 2. <laughs> yeah, dude has been in almost 300 fucking things. And he sang in a metal band when he was, like, all the way up to his death, basically. Yeah, he was in a fucking metal band. He was in the, like, 
actual fucking World War II Nazi-killing subterfuge spy group, the League of Ungentlemanly Affairs, or whatever the fuck it was called, that Ian Fleming, the creator of James Bond, was also a member of. Like, they were actors that would infiltrate all these inner circles and plant misinformation and do assassinations and shit. Like, Christopher Lee killed fucking Nazis, you know? Like, Christopher Lee's a badass. He claims to be directly related to Charlemagne. He's a fucking wild dude. Yeah, rest in peace, man. You were were one of the best. (laughs) He was definitely looking for something different around this time. He met the screenwriter, Anthony Schaefer. He was kind of breaking right at this time because he had a hit Tony-winning play called Sleuth, which was adapted into a 1972 movie, like right before this came out, right before Wicker Man came out, starring Laurence Olivier and Michael Caine, which is a fucking awesome movie, by the way, and Hitchcock's Frenzy, which also came out that same year. So, like, he had this award-winning play, and then very shortly after their initial meeting, but still before this movie came out, he had, like, these other two things come out. Weirdly enough, too, like during my fucking research, Schaefer is the identical twin brother of Peter Schaefer. And I was like, wait, I know this fucking name. He's a dude who fucking wrote Equus and Amadeus and like won Tonys for those. So these are both identical twin brothers who both won fucking Tony Awards for their plays. The fuck? Who wrote like the best shit ever. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway... (laughs) They met, they kind of agreed that they wanted to pursue a story kind of similar to these themes, because again, this was just all in the zeitgeist at the time. There was also, you know, for all of this return to folk kind of revival thing happening, there was also just the very staunch conservative evangelical Christian culture that was in England at the time as well. That was very much pushing back on a lot of this, again, hippy-dippy, return-to-nature kind of stuff. Same thing was happening here in the States, frankly, just a little different from what we have now, but same idea. To the most part, it's always been happening, especially yeah. here in the States. To the point where, like, Sergeant Howie, like, and I think this bit you're on right now, is perfectly summed up in one of his lines in this movie. Sergeant Howie says, you're still under a nation of Christianity and the nation of God. You will be judged accordingly. Like, uh, I think he's yelling at the school teacher for like teaching pagan lessons. We'll get a little bit deeper into that for sure in a second, but that is very much what this movie is kind of working on, right? That was the impetus of what they wanted to do. Director Robin Hardy and producer Peter Snell got roped in and they all agreed that they wanted to make a horror film that was contemporary You know, again, most of the, like, Hammer movies that Lee was doing were all period movies. They were all castles and gothic villages and all this shit, right? They wanted to do something contemporary, but something that's still focused on, like, the old ways, in air quotes. Schaefer chose to adapt David Pinner's novel Ritual, which Pinner himself originally wrote as a screenplay for director Michael Winner, that fucking lunatic. Director of (laughs) The Mechanic, Death Wish, The Sentinel, which we covered way early on in the show. Man, oh man, like we covered that episode well before a lot of the more recent allegations against Michael Winter came out. So yeah, he continues to uh, become more and more of a scumbag. Actor John Hurt was originally kind of intended to lead that version of the movie as well. But that script just didn't work. Michael Winter turned it down and... Penner's agent basically convinced him, like, yo, just adapt this into a novel and just sell the fucking novel. 
So he took the screenplay, turned it into a novel, and then Schaefer took the novel and wanted to turn it back into a screenplay. And ultimately, he chose to only kind of take the broad strokes of the story because he just felt that the novel didn't adapt well as a whole. So it's interesting, like, how much stayed in and how much kind of got lost in translation as this script turned into a novel, turned back into a screenplay, back and forth. They kind of decided they wanted to focus more on the psychological approach instead of kind of relying heavily on, like, violence and gore. Because, I mean, that was one of the things about Hammer as well. Hammer was the way more extreme version of what Universal was doing in America, right? right. All the classic American Universal monster movies. Well, Hammer was essentially doing the same thing, but their movies were in color. Were like way more adult. And they had way more <laughs> sex in them, and they had way more violence and gore in them. Like, they were way more risque, right? That was the whole appeal of Hammer, was Hammer fucking went there. Uncle Acid the Deadbeat's whole aesthetic is basically Hammer horror. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> On top of this novel, which they kind of loosely adapted, they incorporated elements of all these other things into the story and did all this research on like pagan culture and pagan rites and all this other bullshit. So like they literally referred to Julius Caesar's commentaries on the Gaelic War where they pulled the whole idea of the Wicker Man effigy because supposedly Julius Caesar witnessed the Druid priests of the Gauls ritually sacrifice humans to, like, appease the gods. This is the closest we got to, like, actual medieval fantasy land, by the way. The funny (laughs) thing is, this account has largely been scrutinized and kind of reconsidered as most likely Roman propaganda against the savage Gauls, you know? Like, there probably was never actually a Wicker Man, you know, but they pulled that element from there. Schaefer also used James Fraser's The Golden Bough and The White Goddess by Robert Graves for reference and inspiration. And those are two very specific, totemic, magic, occult novels. Those are very like specific works to that whole entire subculture. The Golden Bough, by the way, sounds super fucking interesting and like something I might just fucking dig into and, you know, check out just for shit's sake. It's like a comparative religion study about magic and world culture, and it's kind of supposing that a lot of world religions all have their roots, at the end of the day, ultimately, in fertility worship and cycles of ritual sacrifice. Give and take of spring and winter, life and death, what the fuck ever, right? But the book has all this historical shit from cultures all around the world, too, and specifically details these ritual murders that supposedly occurred at Lake Nemi in pre-Roman Italy. So this is hundreds of years before the Romans, even, ye ancient fucking days. Yeah. And this sounds metal as fuck. So this area specifically of Italy, the high priest of Artemis, would be periodically killed in trial by combat. By another escaped slave, or somebody like that who proved their worth by obtaining the golden bough from the sacred grove, and then they would essentially challenge the current high priest in a trial by combat to secure the title for themselves, and then they would essentially have to, like, be the fucking priest king and watch over their shoulder constantly, just always waiting for, like, the next motherfucker to come and, like... A new challenger, yeah. Right? Like, it's, like, the most metal (laughs) shit. The most renowned... (laughs) 
King Priest, Rex Nemerensis, was seen as this incarnation of a solar god. Fuck yes. And he was trapped in this never-ending <laughs> cycle of death and rebirth, and he was spiritually married to the goddess of the earth and would be ritually sacrificed at the harvest and then reborn again in the spring. You know, there's imagery again in this movie of the Green Man Inn. The Green Man is this pagan Celtic symbol of seasonal rebirth. If anybody has seen Men, by the way, that is a major feature of that movie. There's lots of <laughs> Green Man imagery in that. Yet another Wicker Man uh, influence, I'm yeah. guessing. So it's interesting where they pulled influences from for this movie. Ultimately, what I want to talk about specifically with you is the two characters that are in direct conflict. So we have Sergeant Howie, who again is a police officer from the Scottish mainland who is investigating the disappearance of this girl. He gets like an anonymous letter sent to him saying that she's gone missing, can't find her for a couple of months. She was last seen on this island. So he goes to this remote island to start asking questions and just try to like pick up a trail. Quickly realizes shit's weird on this island, right? The people are different. <laughs> they definitely have weird culture and weird customs and he slowly starts to kind of realize, oh, you motherfuckers have just completely turned your back on Christianity. You are no longer serving the Christian God or Jesus. You don't believe in any of this anymore. It's all gone back to like worshiping the land and the sea and the air and fire and animals and trees. And it's all based around virility and fertility and cycles of death and rebirth and the harvest, because this whole agrarian community was founded two centuries prior, and it was kind of meant to be this agrarian utopia kind of bullshit, but it was all built on, you know, this economy of the harvest. Well, guess what? The harvest doesn't fucking do well. This village and this island, they don't do well either, right? They die, basically, if they miss two harvests. So... He meets Lord Summer Isle, played by Christopher Lee, who is kind of the leader of this group on this island. And there is ideological conflict between those two guys, right? They are directly in collision with each other when it comes to their beliefs and how they're going to go about things, right? Detective Howie continues to investigate what's going on. The villagers basically just fuck around with him the entire time. Yeah, they troll him the whole time. Oh, yeah. it totally just turns into fuck with Howie Day, for sure. Very cat and mouse. When you realize what happens at the end, it wasn't just fuck with him. It was, we are literally we had hunting you. We had planned from the beginning, yes. Yeah, we're hunting you, but we're hunting you in the way a, a cat plays with a mouse before it's actually going to go in for the kill. Yeah, because at the end of the day, too, so much of, how that type of sacrifice is meant to work is that the victim is a willing victim. Kind of does it to themselves in some ways. Yeah. yeah. And I was going to bring this up later, but it is almost like there's the belief that no one's actually sent to hell. You kind of send yourself to hell. Like yeah. your own good intentions pave the way to your own personal hell. I was going to bring it up later with the idea of Christianity juxtaposed against this pagan religion and then what happens to Howie. But I'll make that point now. Like that is also kind of on screen here too oh, absolutely yeah you table set a lot of the background historically around the wicker man which i'm glad you did because i didn't realize that the idea of the wicker man at least that far back was maybe roman propaganda i was reading that there have been accounts at least in the 
17th, 18th, 19th centuries of wicker figures being burnt on specific days. Not necessarily with human Being sacrifice. symbolically burnt in effigy, yes, but not yeah, yeah, as yeah. a vehicle for human yeah. or animal sacrifice in the same way, yeah. Yeah, I remember reading somewhere that one of the bigger accounts from the 1800s was it was a 20-foot-tall effigy that kind of looked like a mummy, but otherwise nothing like super official about human and animal sacrifice in that. So I want to table set the horror. What the Wicker Man means in the world of horror movies especially from someone who's watching it for the first time, someone who is a newbie to horror. I'm the representation here for that. And Aaron, this is probably a lot of stuff you already know and have heard. Same with a lot of people who are already huge horror fans and know Wicker Man and all that. So speaking specifically from this being a first viewing, I always had an idea kind of of the Wicker Man. I knew how it ended. I I know from pop culture references to it, what the general idea was. Because it's been spoofed and referenced. A million times, yeah. Yeah. But the thing I didn't realize was the whole like Christianity versus paganism return to nature. Did not have any clue that that was going to be as big and pronounced as it was in this movie. I had no idea how the movie actually went about to get to the ending. So that was fun watch. I would say, and I know I've done like music comparisons before, and I, that's kind of like something I like to do from time to time as kind of a joke, but also like as a good way to describe this. Wicker Man is one of the most important movies, probably is the most important movie, arguably, for folk horror cinema, and one of the most important horror movies in general for just horror at large. I would say what this movie is like for folk horror is because this album has been on my mind lately. This is like Black Sabbath's self-titled Black Sabbath for folk horror. The song Black Sabbath off the album Black, Black Sabbath, Sabbath by the band Black, Black Sabbath. Because <laughs> folk horror has been around, but I don't think it was really like brought into the modern world of horror films until this movie really came around and kind of in the same way with black Sabbath and metal, not in America again. Yeah. There was, you know, for the 10 to 15 years prior to this movie's release, there was kind of a big movement in the UK. There was a lot of British and Irish and Scottish cinema that was kind of working on some of these themes. There is a very like well-worn tradition of, ghost stories and that kind of stuff that kind of had these folk roots that were all British. If you want to know a really good history of all that, hands down, the best thing that you can fucking check out is the documentary Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, A History of Folk Horror. Yeah. It's a documentary that came out in 2021. It's directed by Kirla Janice. That is the main kind of big centerpiece of that Severin folk horror box set that came out a couple of years ago, but the documentary in and of itself is its own standalone thing. And it's like a three hour documentary. It is streaming on Shudder, but it's easily available in a bunch of different other places. It gets more into the specifics of what UK folk horror stuff was kind of happening at the time. And it goes into like American folk horror and folk horror around the rest of the world. Like it goes off into everything, but there is a very deep, rich, and consistent history of this in the UK, but to your point that you're trying to make, it had not broke worldwide in the same way that this movie really did. Witchfinder General, Blood on Satan's Claw, and like there were a few movies that kind of 
splashed a little bit, not in the way that Wicker Man did. Yeah, and I knew you were going to bring up that documentary at some point in this episode, so shout-outs to uh, Heather the Librarian, one of our most consistent listeners who talks horror with me from time to time. She was also the one who brought up libraries being a good resource for horror. She checked out the documentary, and she's a big folk horror fan, so shout-outs to you, Heather. But back to my point, like, yeah, why I'm saying this is kind of like the Black Sabbath of folk horror movies, because you had that kind of stuff, you had it already being explored in in the UK and other areas of the world. Nothing really exploded worldwide until this movie. And so here's the thing, from a horror standpoint, this is such a strange bag of a movie. It's a great movie. It's an absolute must-watch for horror fans. Obviously, it's earned its status as one of the best ever, and I can see why. The best way I can describe it is it's unsettling. Yeah. And then the final 50 minutes are generally like, I was shocked with how disturbed and bad but in a like good horror way i was feeling during the last 15 minutes of the movie i was having a physical like gut-wrenching reaction and feeling uncomfortable and like creeped out because like it almost had like a documentary style like this is actually happening i was really bought into it it's also just the fact that it is doom it is just fucking doom shown on screen It is inevitable. It just keeps fucking slowly moving forward. Nothing's stopping. You know the fucking fate that this guy is heading toward, and yet all these fucking people are singing and dancing? Like, it it is that weird clash of tones that's happening, right? So the two things that really disturb me about that scene, not just like a man being burnt alive, it's the idea that there's all these innocent animals and you're hearing their screams, and then on the outside you're hearing basically a hippie commune sing these glorious songs of like folk to the spirits and it's so like uplifting and happy while like a man is being burnt alive right in front of them and then with the idea that they've sacrificed children years prior and everyone's okay with this so the thing i find fascinating is everyone's different takes on this movie like because i read takes all the way from like blog spots to uh, editorials to people just posting on horror subreddit and folk horror subreddit how they feel about this movie, like what it means to them. I saw people who agree with the cultists. I've seen people who denounce the cultists. I've seen people say how he deserved his fate and that's what it was. I've seen every opinion of this movie. I find it fascinating because the movie does a good job of, because most of the movie is him basically walking around this like sleepy town as cultists kind of fuck with him, like you were saying, Aaron. But there's also like this idea of he's being really judgmental and a lot of the people are kind of just laid back. So you feel for the people, but like, and you brought it up before, Aaron, it's like that weird, strange idea of, oh, what if when you were a kid, you went out to the grocery store, saw your teacher, one of the most hard ass teachers, such an authority figure in life, and you see them pick their nose and eat it. Yeah. It's that weirdness to it where you as the viewer almost feel like, okay, he's being too judgmental. But then like he walks into a church graveyard and while there's this woman who's breastfeeding her baby, that's not something you see every day, but hey, maybe she just wants the privacy while she's breastfeeding this baby. But then the movie takes a step further. She's not only breastfeeding this baby, she's like holding an egg, yeah, staring down, smiling the the policeman and then holding an egg in another hand in some what you think is unknown ritual. That's like a fertility thing. Yeah, fertility thing. But that's such a thing like you just wouldn't see every day in a graveyard. And then when he's walking around outside at night and just walks into a field and there's an orgy actively happening right out in the open and you're not really prepared for that. 
but then at the same time, he has that Christian edge of judgmentalness towards everybody. And it is very puritanical, like almost yeah. 15th century puritanical. So it's weird because you, you know something's up with these people. You know that at the end of the day, they aren't good. But the movie makes you kind of almost question the morality as well of everything because the person you're following is also kind of a shithead in his own way yeah. of religious superiority. Howie is an incredibly unlikable protagonist. I want to split this conversation off in a second here and bifurcate it, but I kind of fall on the side of both he and Lord Summer Isle are kind of the two who are the opposing forces, and I think they're both bad. They're both wrong. So that was going to be my ultimate point. Yeah. I don't like to normally take that stance with a lot of things. I think, honestly, that's a lot of what is wrong with especially American culture and a lot of how we have gotten to the point we have now because there is so much both sides are bad bullshit. And empirically, mm, there's only one side that's wanting to like literally put people in fucking camps and deny education and deny rights and all this other shit. I don't like the whole idea of both sides are just as bad. This is kind of an example, though, of eh, both sides are kind of wrong. I'm not going to blame any of the villagers, though. And that's kind of where I ultimately fall down this. I think the villagers, for the most part, they're just doing their shit. They're living their lives how they know how to live their lives. But there is definitely a manipulation and there is a propagandization that is happening from a higher class level. Lord Summer Isle, he's a lord. He, like, owns the island ostensibly, his family. I mean, his estate is more grand than anybody. Operates the anybody's. Island, yeah. All the other people live in these fucking hovels, and he lives in this giant fucking, like, mansion castle. So much of this is class manipulation. And that's where I come down on it in terms of both sides are bad. Well, and the other revelation, and I don't think the movie's trying to hide this or make the audience put this pieces together. I think it's very much in the like upfront. I think the other puzzle piece that shows that he's kind of also full of shit is that like, and you mentioned earlier, he's two generations removed from his grandfather was one who bought the island and found this community. And he even says his grandfather was a man of agricultural science. Yeah. That's how he started growing these apples and this yeah. produce on this island. He developed this specific strain of apple that was designed to like survive the harsh climate of this island where realistically nothing should be growing. But yeah. That's what their entire economy is based on. But that is man imposing his will onto nature. And now they are trying to appease nature again to get things back in balance. And there's this weird hypocrisy there. Well, not only that, but then Lord Summerall himself kind of admits to this weird thing where between his grandfather and his own father, like, there came this idea of, well, how do we make the people that are working for us happy and convince them these things need to happen this way? We basically found this form of paganism and brought back the old ways yeah. in a way of almost control. And Summer Island, his excuse to it, the movie hints that maybe he believes his own bullshit, but it never fully sides one way or the other if he actually believes in this stuff. Because he says, my father ruled out of fear, I rule out of a place of love. I don't think he buys the bullshit of the faith he's peddling, but he certainly yes. buys his own bullshit. Yes, I agree with you. I guess let's start with Lord Summer Isle. So, like, that line at the end where he is so fucking convinced in his own correctness and that he is absolutely fucking right and he's doing the right thing. 
and that his decision is 100% the right one, no ifs and buts. He is right, he's gonna be right in the end, you fucking watch. Can you not see? There is, there is no sun god, there is no goddess of the fields. Your crops failed because your strains failed. Fruit is not meant to be grown on these islands. It, it's against nature. Well, don't you see that killing me is not going to bring back your apples? Summer Isle, you know it won't. Well, go on, man. Tell them. Tell them it won't. I know it will. Well, don't you understand that if your crops fail this year, next year you're going to have to have another blood sacrifice? And next year, no one less than the king of Summer Isle himself will do. With the crops for your Summer Isle. Next year, your people will kill you on May Day. They will not fail. The sacrifice of the willing king like virgin fool will be accepted. There is something interesting about the idea of this human connection to nature versus dominance over it and again we're we're talking about this movie from like an american cultural standpoint right like mindset one of the biggest hypocrisies that i've never understood is hunting culture is like such a big fucking thing in conservative culture right the hunting culture tm is so largely dominated by conservatives american hunting (laughs) american hunting sure yet These are also the same exact people who deny that climate change is occurring and don't contribute to conservation to keep these fucking animals alive and keep this world that they exist in going. They want to fucking hunt. They want to dominate. But it's clear that, oh, you're just as willing to, like, go to a fucking weird nature reserve where they just herd the animals and run them in front of you and you just blast them with a fucking you know, machine gun, and yay, I hunted, look what I did. There's this weird artificiality to, like, we want to hunt, but we're also not willing to, like, let nature take its course and preserve nature and protect nature, because there's this also weird Christian undercurrent of God gave us dominion over the earth, therefore we're justified in exploiting the earth however we see fit. So we will drill for oil, we will frack for natural gas, we will burn down and deforest the entire Amazon, we will strip mine the fuck out of this African country for this one weird mineral. That weird juxtaposition and hypocrisy is always fucking kind of weirded me out. There's the weird hypocrisy of we're not going to accept that climate change is real and we're just going to like exploit the fuck out of the natural resources of the world, yet we also want to take advantage of wildlife and hunting and camping and all this other bullshit. Eventually, you're not going to have animals to hunt. Eventually, you're not going to have places to camp. Eventually, you're not going to have this natural world that you love because you fucking burned it all down. And so that's where Summer Isle is kind of also, even though he's the antithesis of christianity in this movie he's kind of doing the same thing of like believing his own bullshit well it's also the thing too where like do you ever see anybody actually farming in this movie no i think there's one or two people that like picked an apple 
Yeah, that's the Maybe. most you see, but you don't see any actual large scale. Most of the time, they're drinking, fucking, or fucking with the policeman in this movie, right? Or doing weird rituals. Is it not also plausible that the fucking crops failed because all these goddamn hippies aren't out working the fields? Right? It's weird. It's a little bit of both. What is the cause? What is actually happening here? We never actually see anybody working. They're all just fucking partying, you know. So, which is it? That what makes that ending scene so memorable and so horrific too, and where that ending scene really reveals everything that's going on in this movie and what this movie is actually like dealing with. And this is a credit to Christopher Lee's acting ability and his nonverbal acting when Howie is basically shouting at him like, "Next year, what what do you think is going to happen when the yes. crops fail again? They're going to turn on you because they're going to think they need an even greater sacrifice. And who is a greater than Lord Summerisle as far as sacrifices go?" When he's shouting, like, no, I know it will not fail. Like, this will appease the gods. It will not fail. You could see in his expression oh, yeah, he, a little he bit knows. of doubt he's and fear. Nervous. Yeah, so you know he's going to be spending the next bit of the year planning an escape. That idea of necessary sacrifice, on one hand, he is saying, oh, no, we have to have this. We have to have this sacrifice of a person. Animals aren't enough. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> this is absolutely necessary to keep the community running. And and like you said, if it fails again, this is on you, bud. It kind of reminds me again, if we're talking like current affairs and trying to find modern relevancy in this movie and like ways to connect to it, feels a lot like, oh, yeah, to save the earth, we really need y'all to be recycling. and We really need you to like yeah. use these fucking paper <laughs> straws and we really need everybody to be pulling their own fucking weight and burning less gas and walking more. And we really need you to use no plastic bags when you shop. A lot of that bullshit that gets passed down to like us. And yet fucking Jeff Bezos makes one trip to a fucking summer home and the fucking emissions from his goddamn plane burn more bullshit than we cause in our lifetimes. You know, just the hypocrisy of don't fucking tell me what to do from a corporate standpoint when you're unwilling to actually make any cuts yourself and you're the ones that are contributing nine times more, right? Wasn't there a study that showed even just erasing one Fortune 500 CEO, not even the company, just one CEO? would do more help for the, the environment than if 70% of the population doing all that shit. Yeah, exactly. Or something That's what ridiculous. I'm one fucking CEO flying across the country, yeah. that one plane trip puts out more emissions than like you driving your car your entire life. Like it's it's that kind of bullshit. Yeah. And that's what Summer Isle's doing. Yeah. To be fair to fucking both sides, uh Dems refusing to acknowledge the reality that there is creeping fascism happening. And they're too busy fucking chiding all the more extreme leftists for, like, taking practical, violent approaches to combat totalitarianism. Like, oh, whoever Antifa is, if there is, is even an Antifa, like, they may be taking a little bit too far. You know, you gotta wonder, like, how people actually take it seriously if they're willing to be so fucking ridiculous. Meanwhile, like, there is fucking right-wing militia, like, in your fucking downtown right now. Blah! Don't fucking ignore the problem and come up with all these like weird fake half-assy bullshit solutions when you could be taking direct action in a better way why are they sacrificing a person why are they not i don't know working on a better strain of fucking apples why are they not i don't know figuring out new methods of farming why are they not i don't know rotating to different areas of the they're fucking too island busy fucking they're too busy exactly fucking, right and having the women jump over fire topless and nude so they can exactly be fertile. So. 
it kind of reads as this interesting scapegoat of this is maybe a quick and easy solution and maybe that'll solve all the problems. And it's all kind of coded in this old ways religion that people have bought into so fucking hard. I mean, even the idea of dressing up as the three characters of the fool and the two others. That is very also medieval kind of festive ceremony. Yeah. So it's interesting, like the mismatch of druidic paganism and medieval UK like festival culture that this community has formed. Well, it's all a mishmash. That's kind of another interesting thing. So playing into what I was just kind of talking about, so much of what's going on on this island is all just predicated by the Summer Isle family kind of just finding something for the plebs to do is like a means to appease exactly. them and keep them distracted. And that goes back to my original point of between Grandfather Summer Isle and Father Summer Isle, they basically formed this religion, this pagan nature religion, and then the current Lord Summer Isle is the one who's like, no, my father was evil about it. I'm doing it from a yeah. place from love. Hippy dippy. It's interesting, too, because even in like a meta context, the making of this movie context, like I mentioned, they did a lot of research into like all this paganism shit and all these other like customs and cultures of these different parts of the UK and everything else. The funny thing is, it's just this fake mishmash. None of this has any basis in reality. I do like the beginning of the movie. They're like, oh, thank you to the Summer Isle for sharing your cultures with, yeah. you know, with like the filmmakers and producers, whereas they don't exist. Yeah, it's very 30 years ago. These teenagers were killed in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, I, I do. I do appreciate that old style of marketing a horror movie. <laughs> yeah, but I love that there is an artifice and there is this fantastical nature to the island itself. And the funny thing is, and again, I keep stepping back to kind of have the right context for this. The British film industry was at a like a really rough point during this film's production, right? The studio that made this movie, British Lion, they were bought by a new owner, and then this film was rushed into production in order to like keep that new studio from bankruptcy. And funny enough, EMI ended up buying the whole studio during the production regardless. Oh, geez. <laughs> but what this meant was the film, which was, it takes place during spring. They had to shoot the fucking movie in October and November. Womp womp. So that's why it's kind of overcast. Honestly, it does help the movie, though, I feel like. It helps with the doom yeah. kind of atmosphere, right? They literally had to glue fake flowers and blossoms to all the trees and shrubs and shit because none of it was actually in bloom. Well, that's really impressive because it does, like, I think you're about to get to this point. It adds this, again, weird artificial etherealness to yeah. the island. Yeah. There's like this weird, fantastic nature to it. There's palm trees. Like, what fucking area of the UK just has palm trees, right? I don't fucking know, but it can't be like a Scottish island, right? Yeah. And th there is no island. This was not actually shot in Oh, yeah. No, this is a fictional place, by the way. Yeah. Well, not even that. What I'm saying is this is not just one place they didn't yeah. pick a specific island and say let's go here and shoot on this island this is shot in like 50 different locations mainland yeah. islands everywhere like this is such a hodgepodge the of downtown shots are like in a city somewhere completely yeah. separate from like some of the outdoor shots yeah the scene where they're in the cave certain angles are in one cave certain angles are in a completely yeah. different cave somewhere else in the country it's all over the place to create this hodgepodge there are summer islands, but they're not at all anything sure. like what this island is supposed to be. And on top of all of that, most of the folk customs that are depicted in this movie 
aren't even Scottish. They're not Hebridean Scottish. They are mostly English and Irish. The fucking humpback character is clearly modeled after Punch, as in Punch and Judy, Punchinello, right? Which is fucking Italian Commedia dell'arte bullshit. Even, like, the fucking cast is not even Scottish. Nobody in the principal cast is Scottish. Fucking <laughs> Christopher Lee and Edward Woodward are both Brits. The innkeeper's daughter, I read, was actually, like, a Swedish model, and they had her dubbed over by a different actress. Oh, it, we'll, we'll dig into that in a minute. But Diane Salento is an Aussie. Ingrid Pitt is Polish. And then Britt Eklund is Swedish. None of them are Scottish, right? So there's, like, this weird mishmashy we're just making this bullshit up as we go kind of artificiality to all of it <laughs> but that le- somehow lends credit to like ward summerisle also being full of shit still like him and his family yes it's very <laughs> much this we're just going to like figure out this new system and method and it's just a way to like again appease the plebs it's just a way to like keep the villagers fucking happy and distracted But another great horror aspect to that is, like, if this is an infantile religion that is basically only in this island, I don't even know if the grandfather formed it. It sounded like it was his dad who put it together, so it's maybe a couple decades old at most. What's freaky is by the time Howie gets to the island, it's as if this culture existed for hundreds of years. They are so bought into it. The practices, which some of them do seem just completely otherworldly, to even us, the audience, because we're following this puritanical police officer who's very close-minded so we're not seeing the whole picture behind some of these ritualistic beliefs and teachings but like what we are seeing is it seems like these people have been practicing this for centuries when in actuality it's only been a couple decades at most and like they are thousand percent bought in that's what's scary we know that that's true we know that that's real because look at the manson family well in this age of fucking social media and everything else oh yeah that it's a fucking fad and trend now especially amongst a lot of these fucking fundy conservative maga alt-right groups that oh, we're going to go fucking raw with our diets. We're going to go with like a caveman diet. We're going to like eat raw meat and drink fucking raw milk. And we're going to eat a ton of fat and liver and all this bullshit. There's weird diet fads now where like, oh, I'm going to eat a fucking like raw steak and a stick of butter for breakfast, bro. Like, you know, there's like a lot of bullshit like this where five years ago, six years ago, 10 years ago, Nobody would be doing this. It's a weird trend that's kind of kicked up in all these little sub pockets of culture, and they become kind of fatty, but it does kind of become cult-like in its mentality, and it becomes this performative, oh, you don't eat as much meat as I fucking eat, bro. I eat all the raw meats, all right? Like, who's the fucking, like, Liver King or whatever that guy was that just recently was like, nah, I faked all this shit, Yeah, right? yeah, it got pulled. As yeah. we see constantly, especially with the right wing. There is this wild, I know I can co-opt the bullshit messaging and grift everything that's here and just tell these people everything they want to fucking hear because I know they're going to fucking buy it. And I know that I'm going to be able to profit off of that. And the same kind of shit happens on the left, too. Again, to be fair, right? You have the same kind of hippy-dippy, crunchy, ultra-left-wing types that do the same kind of shit. Fucking... Gwyneth Paltrow and her, like, jade pussy eggs and (laughs) all that bullshit, right? (laughs) To be fair, okay? But there is definitely a classist 
thing that's happening here in this movie, and that's very much true to real life, too. I mean, we have, on one hand, you know, you have the MAGA side of things where, like, all this shit's being spewed, and yet, bro don't care about his people. He doesn't give a fuck about his people. He rolled all those people that went to the insurrection under the bus and did not come to their aid. Just like if he gets fucking arrested, anybody that fucking stands up to him and does anything dumb is going to get fucking rolled under the bus because he doesn't give a shit about them. You know, the whole idea of all these things we're seeing across every state, rolling back all these child safety laws and child work restrictions, yet at the same time, we're fucking harboring child abusers in Congress and in churches, and we're then going to go on this fucking crusade against the queer community because, oh, we got to save the fucking children. It's all this fucking weird hypocrisy. It's all distraction, and it's all like... Yeah, it's culture war yes, bullshit. It's all bullshit from the higher class to keep everybody below them fighting. There very much is that weird kind of thing happening in this movie where Summer Isle, again, like you can tell, he does not 100% buy into all this shit. He's just putting up this front because he knows everybody else is buying into this bullshit. And so that's what is fun is if the crops fail again, bro, it's your fucking head. And like you said, you can tell he kind of knows that that's uh, <laughs> that's a thing. But at the same time, he he's so charismatic. And oh, this sure. Belief yeah. system is so set in place. Those type of people are always charismatic. Yeah. Yeah. But like he's so charismatic and this belief set is so set in place that you start to question like, well, does he believe his own? Is he is just invested in this as all the other villagers? Because the villagers are a thousand percent invested. Yeah. And he. He seems friendly and respected enough, but like, yeah, you're right. I don't right. think he buys into the religion he's pushing. I don't either. I think he buys into himself. He knows that he can manipulate the situation. He knows that he can manipulate people. He knows that he can come up with new tech, as the Scientologists say. He can come up with new rules. He can be that cult leader that just randomly says, the Lord told me I need to sleep with all your wives, so we're going to do that now. It's the same bullshit we've seen a thousand times, right? I mean, it is Christopher Lee, so... I, like... It is Christopher <laughs> Lee, and everybody is already <laughs> fucking on this island, but... Yeah. What's so tragic or, like, ironic is that the other character, Howie, he actually does believe all of his own bullshit. He's puritanical. Yes. Very close-minded. So that's a good way. Let's transition to the other side of this. So again, before we get into Howie, I think the thesis here to keep in mind is both of these men deny the objective truths of the world around them. They're just doing it in different ways. And they're both hypocrites. But they're both guilty of the same thing, and they're both fucking hypocrites, right? Howie has the fucking most annoying dipshit square arrogant superiority complex yeah and it drives me up the wall it's the kind of thing that i see in people all the time that drives me up the wall especially growing up in the bible belt that yeah. weird hypocrisy drives me up the wall so not not just even the religious angle he's doing the pulling rank thing yeah. that frankly is also looked down upon in the military he's a fucking bad cop constantly threatening people and saying i'm a cop i answer to the queen yeah i am the authority of the law no matter what your religion on this island says we are a christian nation therefore you will be judged accordingly yeah he goes around spouting all that nonsense they even point this out to him like when he meets the four criteria and one of the criteria is he's the fool he's literally the fool in the ceremony because he dresses like the fool but he is also the fool in many ways, because his own closed-mindedness. And one of the characters calls him out. Some of the characters give him every chance to either leave the island or, like, get out of harm's way yeah. multiple times. And his own closed-mindedness to everything around him 
causes him to ignore these safety paths out of this doomed path that he's on. One of the characters straight up, I think it was either the school teacher or someone being like, it's a shame that you're so like, you just don't understand. You'll never understand. Yeah. And I think that's where they ultimately like realize like they got him because he's not going to change in his ways. He's not going to yeah. realize what's right in front of his face. But that's what's terrifying is whereas Summerisle kind of believes in himself, but not necessarily the bullshit he's spewing, how he believes the bullshit he's spewing so much so that it's blinded him to the reality that's yes. around him. Yeah. And what's also aggravating about that character, especially in this type of movie where he is ostensibly positioned to be the protagonist yeah it's always the fucking worst when that character self-identifies as the hero when that character says no i'm the one that's right i'm the one that's the good one i'm the one that's gonna like save the day and do the right thing i'm the one that's gonna defeat the evils on this island which fucking sucks because he is right there is a missing girl and he does need to look into this more because kind of right because ultimately we learn the girl's never been missing yeah the mystery has been like right in front of his face the entire fucking time he was just too blind to see it and just his arrogance led him to believe that there was still something wrong. What I meant was the intention of not giving up on what he thinks is a missing girl. Granted, like you said, he's blinded to the truth that's in front of him. He never just calls it a day until sure. it's way too late. But does he have actually that care passion? about the missing girl? Yeah, correct. <laughs> does he actually yeah. have that passion? No, I don't think he does. And that intention because he actually cares about this girl and her life and the fact that she's missing and he cares about her. Fa- no. He only fucking cares about finding this girl to prove that he is right and that he could do and that he is the best fucking cop. That's what I mean sucks because the idea of finding the girl not giving up on what is either a kidnapped victim or a possible murder victim, that's great. That's what you should do. But the intention as to why he's doing it is what fucks it up. Yeah. Again, he's not witnessed anything that's actually inherently evil or criminal on this island. He's just witnessed a lot of stuff that goes against his fucking evangelical beliefs and just his fucking square personality. He's basically just mad that all these people are partying and having more fun than he is, but, like, he never actually witnesses anything criminal. It's just he's convinced everything is inherently evil, right? And his own pride is what brings about his demise. I mean, that's like the whole irony of the Punch costume is Punchinello is that character, right? Punchinello is that character that is convinced that he is the fucking genius despite everything going on around him in the circumstance and he is just always fucking wrong. He's the fucking idiot that kind of blunders through life and everything just kind of magically works out for him and he thinks he's the fucking coolest dude and in reality he's the fucking idiot the whole time, right? Yeah. And it's the same juxtaposition with his fucking police uniform. Like, it's the same thing. Like, dude, you're wearing this fucking police uniform on this island thinking, like, I'm this figure of authority and you have to do what I say. And, like, no, you have no fucking authority here. Nobody has to listen to you and you're abusing your power and you're being a fucking bad cop. You're being the definition of a bad cop by abusing your power. The villagers know it from the get-go because by the end... And they all call him on it, too. He just still abuses his power and pushes through and goes where he shouldn't and everything else, yeah. Even when he's being death-marched, he's still doing it because, like, he's yelling, like, oh, people come for me. And Lord Summer Island himself is like, no one's coming to look for you, bud. We know. No one's coming. And I think where the movie really, like, highlights his own hypocrisy. And I like the way it juxtaposed this scene because he had just witnessed, in his mind, weird ritualistic or cultural differences of this island. 
on, I think it was either the orgy or something else. And then in his mind, he's remembering a part where he's reading scripture at a mass and then receiving the Eucharist. The way the movie shoots it is that is just as ceremonial and that is just as ritualistic as any of the cult shit that's happening on this island. Sure. At the end of the day, when you really think about it, Christianity, Catholicism, all of it, the idea that you're receiving a piece of bread and drinking some wine and that a priest is changing it into the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ and you're consuming it, that, I mean, how is that any different? Yeah, like how is that any different than any other religious practice that's going on before and after Christianity? Even beyond that, I mean, that's all also part of his arrogance and blindness is just that refusal to accept that oh there's a shit ton of pagan traditions that have found their way into Christianity. <laughs> in Christianity, the yeah. <laughs> they point that out, yeah. that, oh wait, so these virgins are all jumping over the fire because they believe that they're going to be impregnated by this ancient fire god, and he's like, that's horseshit, that's ridiculous, and Christopher Lee points out. They do love their divinity lesson, but they are, are naked. Naturally, it's much too dangerous to jump through the fire with your clothes on. What religion can can, can they possibly be learning jumping over bonfires? Parthenogenesis. Literally, as Miss Rose would doubtless say in her assiduous way, reproduction without sexual union. Oh, what is all this? I mean, you've you've got fake, fake, fake biology, fake religion. Sir, have these children never heard of Jesus? Himself the son of a virgin, impregnated. I believe, by a ghost. Now, those children out there, they're jumping through the flames in the hope that the god of fire will make them fruitful. Really, you can hardly blame them. After all, what girl would not prefer the child of a god to that of some acne-scarred artisan? And and you you encourage them in this? Actively. It's most important that each new generation born on summer I'll be made aware that here the old gods aren't dead. And what of the true god? whose glory churches and monasteries have been built on these islands for generations past. Now, sir, what of him? He's dead. He can't complain. He had his chance, and in modern parlance, blew it. Fucking, what's that called? It's um, Parthogenesis, is that correct? I think so. That whole idea? Fuck, I mean, our traditions of Easter bunnies. All of that is pagan shit, right? Dying eggs and fucking, like, virgin blood and all this shit. Halloween? Halloween, like, we'll discount. That's never been widely <laughs> embraced by the Christian community kind true. of thing. But yeah, true. fucking Christmas trees in your house is certainly <laughs> yeah. a goddamn pagan <laughs> thing, right? very pagan, yeah. So, like, all of this shit that's made its way into Christianity because over the fucking 2,000 or so years that Christianity has been around, it has had to adapt and it has had to absorb different cultures. I mean, the fucking Romans took their brand of pre-Catholic Christianity, you know, from the Mediterranean, from the Middle East, and they had to fucking then transmute that even further to get all the fucking Gauls Christianized, right? Like, they had to fucking Christianize all the Vikings, but they also had to bring in a lot of Viking culture and bullshit to, like, get that to, like, seep into them and get them to accept it. The history of Christianity in and of itself is this giant fucking exercise in, like, let's just smash all this shit together and just kind of make it up as we go. Yeah, and for our listeners, if whatever you believe in, all the respect in the world to you, but... Don't just, give a fuck. What, do what you want to do, just don't force it on other people. <laughs> yeah, well, that too. But yeah, in the context of this movie, like, that's exactly what it's critiquing here. And again, I'm going back to, like, the stuff I was reading. Like, people side with him, or say he's just a victim. People side with the Islanders. I, again, I think they're both wrong. Does Howie deserve death? 
not necessarily, but again, arguably, he kind of walks into his own death. Granted, they do murder his ass, but sure, you know, yeah. he, he does kind of walk into it. And that's where ultimately, again, who pulls the trigger? Is it the person who actually lit the first match, or is it Lord Summer Isle? I don't know. I would kind of ultimately fall on the side of, well, fucking Summer Isle instigated this whole thing. Like, I would lay the ultimate blame at his feet. Not to necessarily yeah. absolve the villagers for going along with the whole thing, but, you know. But again, he's not a likable protagonist. He's not a likable like- protagonist. No, but nobody is, right? Yeah. I was going to bring up another instance of where he really reveals himself in the hypocrisy. I had this idea when I watched the movie, and I was happy to find that I'm not the only one who caught this, because other people online have said the exact same thing, but where I think he also still reveals himself to the very end, as he's burning to death, where he's revealing himself, he's pleading to God and to Jesus. He's saying the prayer of, please take me into your kingdom and this and that. And what Jesus himself, as he was nailed and dying on the cross, he utters the line, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. Even as he's dying, the Christ-like thing to do is to forgive your aggressors. Mm-hmm. What he does, what how he does, certainly he not starts, what he does, yeah. Hear ye the words of the Lord! Awake, ye heathens, and howl! It is the Lord who hath laid waste your orchards. It is he who hath Reverence the sacrifice. Because the truth is withered away from the sons of men. Desire shall fail, and ye shall all die. Accursed! Yeah, he starts shouting curses. He quotes a Psalms, like Old Testament God smiting, mm-hmm. curse the entire yeah. island and kill everyone. Even in the midst of death, he is still casting yeah. judgment and damnation. Even as he's burning alive, he's flip-flopping because he's like, you know, pleading to God and thinking like, oh, take me into your kingdom, bring me home. And then at the same time, kill these villagers and curse this entire yeah. island. Yeah, that's where he really reveals himself. He's almost like a false martyr in uh, many ways. And ultimately, what's aggravating about him is just he uses his faith as a shield to hide his true fascist nature and his desire to dominate those people that he deems to be less than or unworthy. Like, he has this fucking awful smug sense of superiority toward everybody on this island again something we're seeing in modern day yeah (laughs) once again bringing it back to why this movie is important yeah he always has this fucking smug attitude every time he sees anything from like this little girl who's painting pictures of rabbits and she believes that the rabbit's her friend and lives in the field and all this bullshit to like oh yeah, we're going to put a frog in your throat to like steal your cough and the frog's going to have your cough now and you'll be all better. It doesn't matter how big or small it is. He just has this instant, oh, y'all are fucking crazy. No attempt to like even consider whatever. They live their own life. I live mine. There's no live and let live with him at all. It, It is constantly just, I am fucking right, period. You are all fucking crazy. So this is where like the movie really like was interesting watch for me and where it's really successful is again, I felt as the viewer, as a person watching the movie, I was almost at certain points, I never agreed with Howie, but the way the movie shows and portrays certain things happening, there were moments where like, it was hard not to judge the villagers as this is really strange in my own modern sensibilities. And yeah. like I was catching myself and almost feeling guilty being like, well, no, a lot of them are laid back and they just like having sex. As far as teaching the children about 
sex ed, basically. I was like, this is still better than the way we currently teach our children, at least in the United Which States. Is, don't teach them. <laughs> don't teach them, yeah. For every one of those moments, then there's something strange that happens. Sure. There's something unsettling. There's something just a little bit off. It goes off. one more step, right? Yeah. When he opens the desk of the, the dead or supposed missing dead girl, and there's like the roach that they've been fucking with in the yeah. inside of her desk. Perfect example, whatever. You want to fucking like think a bunny is your friend and you talk to the bunny and you treat the bunny like it's conscious and sentient and your friend, fine. No big deal. I'm not going to like fucking bust a child's balloon and tell them like this is an animal they don't understand you you can't treat them that like no i'm not gonna fucking do that but i'm also not gonna like put a fucking frog in their throat because like salmonella you know like <laughs> or put a an actual bunny corpse in the fucking coffin <laughs> yeah. and whatever that's just fun in games but uh <laughs> yeah but yeah like so. th- there's stuff that you do look at it with your modern sensibilities and there are moments where you're like oh yeah no these villagers are crazy and you kind of have yeah. to check yourself a little bit, you know. Where the actual horror on screen is happening, besides like the last 15, 20 minutes, are those unsettling moments, especially as things are starting to ramp up. And he's basically being stalked by the villagers in the masks. And those vill- the masks are just tainted enough in that weird way of makeshift, but also old school sure. Halloween mask. They're just slightly sinister, yeah. Yeah, they're very sinister. You see like a rabbit and a wolf mask like peering around a corner and then like ducking behind the corner before he can turn around and he like knows he's being watched but can never see them watching him and then they have those camera shots where you can see them peeking behind a bush staring at him. Again, very cat and mouse sinister nature to it. And I thought all of that was great, like very unsettling. And just even the music choices, it's very folky. Yeah, we'll talk about the music like the, in a minute. Yeah, like very folky, very out of place and kind of off kilter for like what's happening. By the way, if I would have watched this movie as a teenager, that scene where like she's trying to proposition him by knocking on the walls and she's basically <laughs> fully naked. Where she's that made literally me. wafting her pussy smell out the window yeah. so that he can like yeah. catch a whiff of her pheromones or whatever. I uh that scene would have made me a man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got got some more interesting shit to talk about when it comes to that scene in a minute. So okay, so like this is a good point. Let's kind of transition back to the production side of this. So like I think ultimately like thematically. You know, the main thing that we kind of both took from this is the idea that good, bad, right, wrong, whatever, it doesn't matter. Everybody's going to have their own side of things, right? And regardless of what your faith is, what your beliefs are, you have to push back against the arrogance that comes with faith and belief in order to, like, actually solve real problems in the world, actually bring real equality to everything. You also have to push back against the arrogance of unbleaking aristocratic classes certitude that I'm rich, I know what I'm talking about, and them manipulating the populace. Those are the two things that we kind of have to actively identify in our modern culture that this movie is kind of warning against. And I'll admit, I didn't expect our discussion to go into that as much as it did, because granted, this is mostly what people talk about from what I'm seeing of this movie is just... More the idea of Christianity versus old pagan ways and respecting nature. That's what most people focus on rather than, no, these are both kind of full of shit people and the angles we were talking about with classism and everything else. I don't think it's wrong, but it's just kind of a surface level look at it. Well, and I think it's been talked to death in that way, too. It has been. As well. And I think so much of this movie really just, it all centers around these two guys that are in this collision course. And they they both use their belief systems 
to justify their shitty actions in different yes. ways. Uh, but I, I would be reminiscent for newbies. Like there is very much, at least on the surface, a, a religious angle to this movie. I was not expecting in the idea of Christianity juxtaposed against pagan cult, and it's kind of fascinating to watch. Yeah, especially because the Christian character is also unlikable and just how close-minded and puritanical he is. Whereas, like you know, if someone was more understanding or a little more aware or worldly, they might not have had the same fate. And frankly, again, to be fair to both sides, we have also seen lots of other movies where a more modern, urban, educated, liberal person wanders into a rural, isolated, religious, conservative community and also has the same exact attitude of superiority and just all of that arrogance and these people are all just fucking rubes. Are you describing the plot of every Lifetime holiday movie ever? (laughs) (laughs) Basically, and we will circle back around to that in a minute. That entire idea on the flip side of it, again, to be fair, like that has also been in a lot of movies. Again, the entire idea of the blind arrogance side of it is what this movie is kind of warning against in a lot of ways. Cut out all the horror elements and like the sacrifice scene, and this could be a lifetime movie. Yeah. <laughs> Just a puritanical rube falls for innkeeper's daughter on a magical island of Summer Isle. Exactly. So yeah, let's circle back around and talk about the cast for a second. We are talking about Christopher Lee. Edward Woodward, who plays Sergeant Howie, he is mostly known from like British TV stuff. He was in a spy drama, Callan, that ran like right up to this movie coming out. He's also in Breaker Morant, which is a very interesting movie. The Appointment. He is most well known for The Equalizer, where he is the equalizer for that entire fucking show. And while we have been kind of clowning on his character, he is phenomenal. And oh, he's a great actor in yeah. this role. Again, I can't stress enough, even in modern times, as bloodless as this movie is, the whole sacrifice scene is genuinely disturbing. And a lot of it is the performances between him and Christopher Lee. Yeah. And his like mental breakdown as he's burning to death with all these screaming animals around him in this wicker man. As much as I disliked him as a character, I felt bad for him. <laughs> yeah, totally. He is also in, and again, this is totally on purpose. He's in Edgar Wright's Hot Fuzz, because there's also a lot of man in Hot Fuzz. Is he in Hot Fuzz? Oh, sorry, I'm spoiling Hot Fuzz. Yeah, Yeah. there's there's lots of people in that movie that are there for very specific, cheeky reasons. Edgar Wright knows what he's doing. This role was originally offered to Michael York and David Hemmings, which, again, that's the connection that I mentioned to you about you watching Deep Red kind of unplanned on your own. Yeah. So interesting that that coincidence happened here. Lee offered this role to Peter Cushing, and he turned it down due to scheduling reasons, which the two wow. of them worked together in ton of hammer shit, right? Yeah, that would have been an interesting. That could have been very different. Yeah, and very interesting. Yeah. I don't know that I would buy that he is still a virgin. <laughs> Peter Cushing fucks. Yeah, Edward Woodward, and I'm sure he fucks plenty by the time <laughs> this movie came out. But like, he does such a good job in this role that like, yeah, Howie is totally a virgin. Yeah, like, he's a fucking square. Let me back it up. Not that there's anything wrong if you are a virgin by choice or or whatever, like. More power to you. I'm just saying, like, he's kind of an asshole about it again. Don't fucking that... choose to deal with a judgmental, shitty incel attitude. There's yeah. A difference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what I meant. Yeah. 
Woodward refused to see the Wicker Man until the day that they filmed those scenes. When they actually brought him up to that fucking top of the mountain, he was apparently fucking terrified. Especially when he learned that he actually was going to be put inside of it. Oh, wow. So a lot of, like, his reaction is pretty genuine. Yeah. <laughs> genuine? That's pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. Britt Eklund, as we mentioned earlier, she plays Willow, the landlord's daughter, right? She's a Swedish actress, right? She was in a bunch of Swedish films. She kind of broke over into, like, larger pop culture with Get Carter with Michael Caine, which is a fucking awesome movie. She's in Asylum, which is like a really fucking cool British horror anthology. And then she is in Man with the Golden Gun later with Christopher Lee as Scaramanga. So she is a Bond girl. She was a big it girl of this era. I heard some interview refer to her as the most photographed woman of the 70s, right? And part of it was she was an actress. She was young and hot. She was a model, but she also like dated a bunch of other big people and that was kind of also part of the deal was like she was a celebrity girlfriend too it's funny that that shit has been happening since always movies (laughs) she kind of ruffled feathers on this production because she called galloway scotland the most bleak place on earth (laughs) and all the villagers were like fuck you (laughs) it's can we blame her though (laughs) so she was dating rod stewart At the time of the premiere of this movie. The singer? Yeah. Interesting. And he tried to fucking block the release of this movie when he discovered that she had nude scenes. Back it up. Eklund refused to be filmed below the waist. And she was body doubled without her knowledge. And those scenes were shot later. Now, there remains some like wishy-washy back and forth from Eklund and from everybody else around. Whether or not she actually did opposed to like the filming whether or not her reasons were i don't know there's been like all this back and forth and even she's given back and forth answers on her reasons right either way there's also controversy around like who actually doubled her nobody seems to fucking agree on who it actually was some people claim that it was lorraine peters she's the actress that we see in the graveyard scene she's the one that's crying at a gravestone right some people say it was her some people say it was this other actress named jane jackson Others, including the director, Hardy, claimed that they found a stripper in Glasgow. They were looking for somebody at the very last minute. They literally just found a stripper. Nobody remembers her name, but apparently she like hung around the set for fucking two more weeks after they were done filming, <laughs> just fucking around with the crew. Like I said, Eklund has gone back and forth about her reasons for not wanting to shoot those scenes or whether she like actually did or did not want to shoot them. Right. It's just all this back well- and forth. If there was, like, a non-consensual angle to it, that sucks, but... It doesn't seem to be that at all, because, like, she just said, I'm not filming them, and she didn't. And then they doubled her, right? She was mostly upset that she did not know that she was going to be doubled, and she was then also upset with who they doubled her with. It was, on one hand, it was, I didn't want to be filmed, I didn't want to have a double, I wish they had consulted me. I think the woman that they picked was, like, totally fucking wrong. Like, she literally said... (laughs) Wow. She was, like, upset about it, and she literally jokingly regretted not doing the scenes because she said, quote, they found the ugliest, biggest bottom in the world. (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) Right? Yeah, I'm mad because the woman they found had a bigger donk than I did, right? But she was also pregnant at the time with producer Lou Adler's baby, But she was dating Rod Stewart? She was dating Rod Stewart when the movie came out. Oh, okay. This is during production, right? 
she goes back and forth on, I didn't want to do the scenes because I was pregnant. And then she goes back and forth and says, I didn't even know I was pregnant at the time. Like, there's some controversy back and forth about this, but there doesn't seem to necessarily be any, like, sketchiness, I guess. Besides them just not telling her, oh, we're doubling you for these scenes. But was she dubbed by another actress? So that's the other weird thing. She was also against her wishes, did not know she was fucking dubbed for this entire movie. Yeah. Apparently she tried doing a Scottish accent. Yeah, that's the only thing that's like, you could tell she's dubbed. In yeah, scenes. apparently she tried doing a Scottish accent and it was not great. Yeah. And so supposedly Annie Ross dubbed her regular speaking voice and then Rachel Verney dubbed her singing voice. So it's fucking wild. This stuff happens, right? We've joked about fake shimps before, stand-ins for other people, knowingly or unknowingly, right? I have never come across an instance where three, potentially up to five different people all stood in. That's wild. That's fucking wild. So yeah, anyway, like that's another like wild thing about this movie having such a notorious sexy scene in it, and it's massively complicated. As far as the rest of the cast, Diane Salento played Miss Rose, the school teacher. She is in Tom Jones and Ombre and ZPG. Schaefer actually first saw her on stage and kind of brought her out of semi-retirement to come back for this role. Weirdly enough, they like got together later in 1975, married in 85, and were married all the way up to Schaefer's death in 2001. And I think she was married to Sean Connery at some point, too, to bring it back to, like, Bond shit again. Lastly, Ingrid Pitt. She plays the librarian slash city admin woman that's holding the records. She's got a lot of weird, uncredited work. She was an uncredited extra in Dr. Zhivago, Chimes at Midnight, and Octopussy. Again, another Bond. But she's in Where Eagles Dare, The Vampire Lovers, and Countess Dracula, and The House That Dripped Blood. So she's in a lot of these other, like, sexy British horror movies. I guess I shouldn't be surprised that Bond's influence is all over this movie. Yeah. With how, like, popular it was in the 70s. Yeah. And this being a popular 70s British horror movie. Like I mentioned earlier, this production was kind of fraught and they were working on a very tight budget christopher lee fucking denied his salary and paid for his own press tour expenses what because he was like so fucking passionate about getting this movie made and getting it out there wow good on him and he has always claimed that this was one of his absolute favorite roles that he ever played he was super fucking passionate about this i mean it it is considered up there with his greatest roles yeah (sighs) again he kills it he's great he kills it and like he is legitimately terrifying in a very realistic way and the whole ending part with a good part of why it's so disturbing even in modern day is his performance yeah like we mentioned earlier music huge part of this film it's interesting how so much of the plot and just context is spelled out in so many cases the songs this is sergeant howie a policeman from the mainland who will be spending the night with us this is my daughter willow good evening show the sergeant to his room much has been said of the strumpets of yore Of wenches and bawdy house queens by the score But I sing of the baggage that we all adore The landlord's daughter You'll never love another Although she's not the kind of girl to take home 
to your mother. And Howie is actually diegetically witnessing these songs in the movie as villagers are singing them, and he still is just not paying attention to the fucking clues and the messaging in the songs. Paul Giovanni wrote and composed the soundtrack, and they adapted several known folk songs and wrote a few originals. The performing group is credited as Magnet, right? It was just this group of folk musicians that got together and kind of formed this group. Schaefer and Hardy actually worked with Giovanni on the soundtrack, which is kind of unusual. You usually don't have the writer and the director working with the composer in that way, but they provided lyrics and themes, and they all kind of dug into this folk music historian named Cecil Sharp's work. Sharp was one of the like main figures involved in this huge folk revival movement that was sweeping the UK during the early 20th century. Ultimately, like I mentioned earlier, the producers from EMI, the new producers, of course, like we see constantly, didn't like the fucking bleak ending. It makes the whole movie. Exactly, right? (laughs) And they wanted Sergeant Howie to be, like, miraculously saved by a rainstorm. Fucking come on. Hardy was also forced to cut roughly 20 minutes of footage. It was stuff like there were scenes at the very beginning of Howie on the mainland before he starts the investigation, him receiving the letter and all that shit. There's an earlier meeting with Lord Summer Isle where there's like this speech about apples. There was more stuff cut. And this is one of those movies that is messy in terms of, oh, which version do I watch? What version's available? And like, uh, I've seen a few different cuts of this movie, and I will say I don't really think it matters which one you watch. Yeah, because like I could tell it, it, there's a clear difference when I was watching Deep Red. Yes, and we talked about that ahead of time, and I kind of told yeah. you, like, uh, both cuts are very different. Both cuts are perfectly valid. I would say watch one and watch the other later, but this is a movie where, like... I've seen them, and they don't make that much of a difference. So don't stress about which version you watch. The only thing I could tell is maybe it was cut stuff. And granted, I think it kind of actually helped with the movie, or maybe this was done stylistically on purpose in the movie. There were certain scenes that like suddenly got a lot more grainy, as if they were like cut and not edited and they were put back in the movie but they happen to always be dreamlike and happen in scenes of like a ritual of some kind where did you watch this movie out of curiosity we haven't talked about that yet (sighs) i want to say i rented it on youtube for like three bucks okay i'm curious then what version they're sourcing i watched this again most of my movies are fucking packed up but this was one that i happened to have in my itunes library because maybe there was a digital code that came with the blu-ray or something the version that was on there i think seemed to be like the director's cut but not the final cut necessarily but i know what you're talking about there were some elements that they literally sourced from tapes you know it was, yeah. it was all like these yeah. weird negatives and shit that they used to restore some of it like i said it was done in such a way that i thought it was a stylistic purpose because they happen to always happen sure. at weird scenes and those those moments it kind of gives them a flavor yeah 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 so it actually worked really well because <laughs> like I, I think the biggest example is the fertility ritual where they're jumping over the fire like there was a yeah. part of that got suddenly got grainy and, and all, again it added almost like this magical ethereal strangeness to the scene yeah so the movie ultimately was publicly released in january of 74 
They like screened it for critics and they screened it for like test audiences in December of 73. So that's why it's labeled as 73. And that's why we're going to fucking say it's the 50th anniversary of fucking Wicker Man for this episode. Baby. But it basically <laughs> came out in 74. And what's wild is this was paired as the B movie with Don't Look Now, which like what a fucking awesome double feature that would have been to see. Kind of depressing because both movies are literally about missing children. Yeah, that would have been like a wild double feature to see, not knowing where either of these movies are going. There was a U.S. re-release that was planned for November of 78, and they pushed it to January because the fucking Jonestown massacre happened. And they mm. were like, rough. might not be the best yeah. time to like, put this movie <laughs> yeah. back out. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there are like various restorations that have occurred over the years. Literally as recently as just a few years ago, they have a final cut come out. Schaefer and Hardy up until their deaths even said, I don't think we're ever going to find all the footage. Christopher Lee up until his death was like, I don't think we're going to find all the footage. People have joked that the footage was literally all mixed in with landfill that built the M3 roadway. Like there's all these weird jokes about what happened to all the footage but overall it just seems like we got the best we're gonna get also in 1978 hardy and schaefer got back together wrote a novelization of the movie that expanded the narrative even further i saw that schaefer also wrote a 30 page sequel treatment in 1989 that was called the loathsome lambton worm where howie was going to be saved from death miraculously by a squad of policemen that showed up suddenly and then immediately go into like fucking vengeance mode eventually fighting a fire breathing snake dragon that lives on the island and then jumping off a cliff while tied to a pair of eagles And you know what's crazy is I think that worm that like he's supposed to fight is an actual pagan, not deity, but creature. Sure. It all ties in. So, I mean, we yeah. just talked about Lair of the White Worm a couple episodes back. A part of what makes this movie so good is it's all grounded in reality. Like, sure. There is no supernatural element to it. Yeah. Funny enough, in 2020, again, when everybody was like looking for shit to fucking make during the pandemic, a radio drama adaptation of this script treatment got made. I saw that too. Notoriously enough, as we've already joked, in 2006, there is the Neil LeBute written and directed remake starring Nicolas Cage, Ellen Burstyn, and Lily Sobieski. Boy, oh boy. Let's stop here for a second because we need to give this review. We we fucking watched this in college, man, and it was a blast. I'm putting my foot down right now, and I'm guaranteeing this. Listeners, we are going to do a commentary track on 2006 Remake of Wicker Man. Sure. That's going to be one of my picks that I'm making us do. That'll be shit for the Patreon, baby. If you want to know where that goes, (laughs) you got to subscribe to that Patreon. Man, oh man, is this remake missed the mark. It couldn't have missed the mark of the original Wicker Man more. Yeah. Instead of apples, it's all about bees and honey. There's like a whole weird subplot about like it's actually Nick Cage's ex-fiance who's in this cult and gets him to like come to the island because their daughter's missing. They just slightly rework it in dumb ways. So like his name is Edward Malice. His ex-fiance is named Willow Woodward, right? They're just doing fucking like, you know, Mad Libs with the name. There's no religious angle. There's no religious angle, really. All right, so something that was a meme when Aaron and I were teenagers for our younger audience, that was a big internet meme around 2008, 2009. And I'm sure it's on YouTube. Frankly, I'm sure our younger audience fucking knows about these memes still. They're still popular. There's like a cut of basically Nicolas Cage losing his shit in this movie. And it's like him discovering a burned doll. 
getting tortured by bees. Oh, no, not the bees! Not the bees! Ah! Oh, my eyes! My eyes! Ah! Ah! <laughs> but the best part is when he dresses up like in a bear costume and runs around punching people, yeah. screaming at kids to take off their masks. It's a fucking wild movie. I don't know if it's so good watching alone, but it is great in a crowd, especially if you're drinking. We watched it in college. Shout outs to uh, Nowacki, who has been on, on a couple of our episodes. He l- loves this movie. So real quick, just a tidbit that I saw about this before we move on. Cage himself has acknowledged that this movie is absurd, which if he's saying this movie is absurd, you know it's fucking absurd. In February of 2012, he was in a live web chat promoting Ghost Rider. He was asked what roles he would like to revisit. He responded, and this is quoted, I would like to hook up with one of the great Japanese filmmakers, like the master that made Ringu. I would like to take the Wicker Man to Japan, except this time he's a ghost. <laughs> Look, it, not the bees, not the bees, not the bees. It can't ah! be fucking worse than what we got. That's all I'll say. But yeah, like this movie ultimately just tries to rely on the novelty of being like, fucking Mad Libs word salad bullshit, right? Because it's like set on an American island off the coast of Washington State. This time it's Sister Summer Isle, played by Ellen Burstyn. Like you said, the island revolves around beekeeping and honey, not just general agriculture. You find out that Rowan is actually fucking Nick Cage's daughter with Willow, and that Willow is Summer Isle's sister. There's just all this fucking dumb shit. They just kind of throw all the Scrabble tiles out and rearrange it. And they say, yep, there we go, Wicker Man. <laughs> but none of that is actually creative. Let's reinterpret the story or recontextualize the story. It's just fucking mix up the fucking magnets on your fridge and like, here's the new shit. And Nick Cage is like basically released like a tornado. And I forget who directed this. I know you named them earlier, Aaron. Neil Abute. You could tell he had no idea how to harness the fucking manic energy of Nick. Because I love Nick Cage. Oh, I I love Nick Cage. Like I'm a full-blown apologist for Nick Cage. But you have to understand how to utilize his fucking weird energy. And Neil Abute doesn't. Exactly. And they didn't. (laughs) Yeah, like they just let him be a tornado. And (laughs) that's what happened. So beyond this, there was a stage production that was attempted in 2009 and was announced and they made a big, huge deal of, and it never fucking happened. And then that brings us to the year 2000. Hardy announced that he was writing an official sequel He released a novel in 2006 titled Cowboys for Christ. (laughs) They filmed an adaptation starting in 2009 that premiered at Fantasia Fest in 2011 under the title The Wicker Tree. Christopher Lee appears for like one scene as the old man in air quotes but they aren't explicit that he's playing Summer Isle. Yeah, there's a lot of fan theories that say it's just Summer Isle. Graham McTavish is playing the new Lord of the Island kind of character. The whole fucking movie centers on this evangelical country Texas pop star played by Britannia Nicole and her fucking like cowboy shit kicker boyfriend played by Henry Garrett. And they go on this, it's like the bullshit modern American Christian thing of, we're going to go on a mission trip and save souls. 
to a perfectly first world country where there's <laughs> plenty of people who have totally heard about fucking Christianity, blah, blah. Like, it, it's that oh, weird thing of we're going to go to the lost people in Scotland. So they go to this fucking village. And of course, it, it's all the same shit. I kind of appreciate they get fucked by doing that because, like, you know, deep in the back of their minds are like, oh, we're going to be totally safe evangelizing, like, this first world nation, and then they get fucking murdered. Yeah, so, like, this movie is definitely (laughs) more of the same, right? It's clear from the beginning that they're being set up as, you know, the new sacrifices. There's, like, you know, the temptress woman played by Honeysuckle Weeks who, like, seduces the boyfriend character. Like, it doesn't do anything new. At the end of the day, the entire thing is so fucking bad. And I, I don't know, like, I, I hate shit-talking movies in this way, but this movie is so embarrassingly bad. It feels, looks, sounds like the most basic fucking internet porn without the porn. It has that awkward, stilted Tim and Eric, we shot this against green screen, flat, ugly lighting, digital filmmaking from the late 2000s kind of look. It is embarrassingly bad. I watched it. it. You can watch it on the weird section of Plex where they have movies for free that you can watch with ads. Guess what? Wicker Tree is on there. You're welcome to fucking explore it. It is a fucking awful piece of shit movie. Moving on. <laughs> it's a shame that Hardy wrote and directed this, too. Uh, yeah, well, the wild thing yeah. is he only ever made three movies. He made these two Wicker Man movies, and he made a weird kind of erotic thriller serial killer movie in the 80s that nobody saw. He has made just that, three movies. He planned a third film and a tie-in comic series. Neither of those came to fruition before his death. That was kind of where it's left off. (laughs) There have been rumors of another remake. There have been rumors of a miniseries, and none of that has come to fruition. So moral of the story, just stick with the original, because it's a masterpiece. Yeah. (laughs) Not always. Sometimes, you know, remakes are awesome, but... uh, Oh, no, I'm talking about just in the context of this, yeah. This is just one of those examples (laughs) of there was no need for a fucking remake. Remake compromised movies remake movies that didn't live up to their potential remake movies that have excellent premises but didn't have excellent resources to get made to the full vision (laughs) sundown vampire and retreat yeah yeah right (laughs) those are movies that you should focus on remaking we don't need a remake of a fucking bona fide classic i don't need a rosemary's baby remake i don't need an exorcist remake i don't need a Texas Chainsaw remake. Like, I just none of this. We don't need a Wicker Man. Oh, you didn't like the Robocop remake? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that movie's fucking terrible. Yeah. So I think that wraps up the Wicker Man. I guess I'll take us out. We are a Watch of Dare horror movie podcast hosted by me, the coward, and Craven, and Aaron, movie Monster Boy. You can find us on all your available podcatchers Podbean, Apple, Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. Please continue to rate and review us. Follow us, especially on Apple, Spotify, you can find us on socials at Watch Your Dare on Twitter and Facebook. We have a Spotify music playlist that is pinned on those as well. Speaking of music, shout out to your little brother, Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Partygator, for the bumps at the beginning end of each episode. Find his stuff at Bandcamp, at Partygator, Opossums, Big Clown, etc., etc. Please support us on Patreon. It helps us keep the show ad-free. It helps us continue doing the show and help pay for uh, hosting 
and Riverside for recording and everything. Thank you for those who may already be supporting us on Patreon. You get extra bonus content, extra episodes. We are finally breaking format a little bit, and we are doing TV coverage. We're doing more current reviews. We're doing stuff that people have been asking for on there. So that is going to be the space for that content, as well as just bonus bullshit. Yeah, you can find us at patreon.com slash watch if you dare. I think that's it. Aaron, do you have any final thoughts for us? Yeah, no, I think that's it. Let's just, I guess, go make a sacrifice so that we uh, have a fruitful Patreon going forward. Yeah, cool. But don't forget, animals are fine, but their accessibility is limited. A little child is even better, but not nearly as effective as the right kind of Sally.